Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hey guys, welcome back to Mother May's Super Podcast. Today we are doing Who Killed Jean Bidet? For those of you who are not familiar, I am obsessed with this case. This is probably the first true crime case that I got really into. It was the middle of summer and I just couldn't stop reading tabloid magazines about it. I would take my money and go straight to the store every single week and pick up all the new tabloids. So it's a huge part of my life in some ways. And today we have a great guest, Sue Smith from Scam Wow. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about Jean Bonnet. Yeah, I know. I love her so much. Um, what's your personal relationship with this case? Ugh. Oh, my God. So, it, of course, I remember it happening when I was a kid. But then, like, three years ago, when I got married, the 60 Minutes documentary came out, like, right after I got married, when we were on our honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And I made my husband pause everything so that we could set the time aside to watch the documentary with um, Varner Spitz. It's so good. And uh, yeah, I I, I kind of know a lot, not to brag. <laughs> good. I'm glad because, yeah, I watched all of those when they came out too. I mean, it's never settled this case is just never settled well with me in any way and why should it right i mean this little girl was murdered in her home on christmas on the night of christmas like her there's all this mystery surrounding it i mean i when i first started taking in information about this case like i was a kid there's so much that as an adult re-watching and rereading all this stuff it makes so much more sense to me um but i um i loved I loved those specials so much. I especially love the CBS one, even though mm-hmm. a lot of people think that one was a little, they think it was very skewed. Um, I've heard even people who are Burke Ramsey murdered her truthers say that they felt like there was a lot of cheap shots and that. And also just, you know, I mean, I think we'll never forget the kid hitting um, oh my God. A football covered with ham with a hammer. Oh my God. But how could we forget? But I mean, you know, it, it's an airtight argument for why Burke did it. I think, yeah, Burke ended up suing CBS for like millions of dollars after that. Yeah. He settled, I think he sued for like 175 million. Oh my and God. then he, or maybe it was like closer to 300. Um, cause I remember thinking at the time, like at best, he'll get half of that. Um, and, you know, 
they're so they settled out of court. So I'm sure he did very well. But, you know, there's so I don't know. There's like in order to sue someone for that amount of money, just like my understanding is like when you're suing someone for damages, you have to prove that that's what you lost. Like you potentially yeah. lost three hundred and twenty five million or whatever. In what world that. was Burke Ramsey about to make three hundred and twenty five million dollars? Yeah, because when you're suing for damages, you're yeah. basically saying like you ruined my life. Like, this is what I stood to do in my life. And you took that away from me. So you can't, you know, just sue for an arbitrary number. You have to sue for what your losses are. I never knew that. But I don't know. He's like a big computer programmer or something. So maybe or I don't know. Pain and suffering. Maybe. I mean, 325 million. Like, I didn't realize he was freaking Bill Gates over there. But um, yeah, I mean, I also felt so stupid when I was watching all these specials because deep down, I felt like there was going to be a, like a concrete answer. Same. And obviously, if that was the case, there probably wouldn't even be a TV show because they would have Burke Ramsey in jail. So I'm thinking, you know, the whole time I'm watching this, I'm like, oh, they're going to finally tell me who the killer is. And like, there's just... No way to know. I actually consider, you know, when you think about what heaven is for you, I've always said it's two things. It's like watching every single Real Housewives franchise, the unedited footage, yes, like I love that. absolutely raw footage yes. and being able to see what happened in the Ramsey house that night. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, I want to see every minute of it because I, I am team Burke killed, Um, you know, Burke Same. killed his sister. But I also, you know, Detective Lou Smith, quite a wild character, was not expecting what I saw when we were watching this movie. I don't know why I thought he would be like a boring guy, because of course he's not. He's this like sort of like rogue type detective guy who like floats around and just is like this legend at finding, you know, the truth in these cases. But, you know, there's I started to really I I felt a little bit for the for the police in the moment because i could see both sides of it if i was a cop i would probably go like well a plus b equals c so obviously someone in the house killed them well but well i feel for the ramses because it's like the mom patsy if she was like if anything happens to burke i'll just die or something like that and then she would she would have the other kid taken away from her essentially if they convicted Burke of doing it. So it's like, I don't know. They, she was in a hard place. Well, when Patsy said that to Ramsey, it's interesting because I am of the belief that Patsy Ramsey is like a supreme narcissist or was, um, not to speak ill of the dead, but I'm probably going to be doing a lot of that in this May movie. She rest in peace. Yeah, but I, well, she's not, definitely not resting peacefully. I mean, I really also am one of the people who think that the cancer was, you know, probably a direct result of the stress that came with all of this. Um, But I almost felt like when she says to Linda in the cafeteria, this is when later on when Burke is getting um, interviewed by the like the child psychologist. She says, you know, if I lose Burke, like, you know, I have no reason to live. I almost viewed it as a manipulation. Oh, I can see that. Because, like, it's, you know, mm. she was reasoning with her woman to woman, like, 
she was making it clear what the stakes are for her. And it wasn't, you know, it, like, why was she afraid about losing Burke? You know what I mean? Like, we know why. But what? why was she... Patsy is the one who really tells a lot, if I'm being honest with you. But I think that we don't get a clear picture of her character in any of these documentaries or in this movie because she seems so pulled back and withdrawn like they show the cnn footage of her interview with larry king and it's like she's like drugged she's like on xanax or something so yeah i I feel like we don't know who she really is so that could be a genuine statement or it could be a manipulative statement i mean oh the zans for sure like i was gonna talk about that when we got to the clip of it but like when I was a kid, I had no idea what being zanned out looked like. And now I'm an adult and I'm like, bitch, Whoa. she is on some fucking zans, dog. Like, she's just like not even in her right mind. For some reason, I didn't realize that. I, I don't know. I kind of thought like benzos were a new thing. That's so naive of me because like obviously not. But for I didn't realize that it was so pervasive. Like you could just go get. Xanax day of your daughter being killed. Um, so that sort of like took me aback a little bit. Um, but yeah, I agree. You know, at one point during these, this movie, I just wrote in my notes, like these people are fucking weird. Like this is the yes. weirdest family. Like they're just such strange ducks. And I can't imagine what happened to them happening to anyone else in a weird way. Like it's just they are the people that would have this unsolved murder of their daughter forever they're just they're the right breed of strange they're so weird Um, but okay so there is two lifetime movies about john bonnet this one is my favorite in the sense that it has probably one of the creepiest devices they use the narrator yes (laughs) Yes. they use john bonnet a little girl to sort of paint the picture of her murder and i'm gonna play the first clip um in a second but basically they portray her as having a very childlike understanding of what happened to her, which, you know, makes sense. She is a child, but she wasn't so naive that she didn't, that she probably wouldn't have under, had more understanding. They also act like she doesn't remember anything after she went to bed. Um, and I just think it's such a disservice to the story and so creepy to like think that she would want to have a hand in any of this. Right. Right. Okay, so I'm going to play the first clip, 30 seconds to 125. This is kind of like a bedtime story. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Jean Benet. She looked like a princess, but she wasn't. She was just a normal girl who wanted to play outside and ride her bike. As I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul today. That's the last thing I remember, saying those words. Then I fell asleep. remember anything after that 
Oh okay. my god. Uh, it's so creepy. It's it's so creepy. Um obviously, okay, we got we got the version of this down. We know what this is going to be. It's going to be a freak show. So, then we cut to December 26, 1996 at uh 5:52 a.m. and we see the 911 operator taking this call from Patsy Ramsey, which we all know very well um by now. So, we cut back then to 30 hours later. Can I just say, like, how much therapy do you think 911 operators get? Oh, it's got to be so traumatic. I cannot imagine having that job. It's one of like the sort of unsung hero jobs, I feel like, because you are internalizing so much horror. And, you know, eventually you probably will find out what happened on the other end of that call. But I'm sure you're left with a lot of stuff you don't really know. Like, you can't really follow every case you get. You know, so it's very, um, I, I, every time I see someone taking a 911 call or even just listen to one, I feel so bad for the operator. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we go to, um, 30 hours later. It's at the police station. And, you know, we find out that this narcotics detective is going to be put onto this case because he can be the one who's, you know, possibly able to solve this puzzle. Wait, um, can I, and can, can I just say with the 911 call? So, this is this is very nitpick nitpicky of me, but she doesn't say her name. She just says, I'm the mother. And then at the end of the scene, the 911 operator is like, okay, Patsy, thank you very much. And I'm like, damn it, she didn't say her name. How do you know her name is Patsy? It made me so That's bad. So funny. I was I thought it was actually the call. I don't know if it was actually the call. Like it sounded to the quality didn't sound shitty enough to be the call. The call. I got you. I got you. Yeah. Well, I mean, lifetime. Well, you have some fucking explaining to do, dude. They do this throughout where they show like stuff that looks like old footage, but it might be old footage, but it might not be old footage. So they kind of do that throughout. Yeah, they definitely didn't use like the Chris Watts approach that they used in a lifetime movie where they were able to cut in a lot of real stuff. It's to the point where it is a little bit eerie when they show Steve's book cover and like the tabloid covers. Cause all of that was very real. I like feel like I remember seeing some of that stuff. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they're dealing with a lot over at the station right now. And, um, you know, they, they find out at this point that the family is trying to take the body to Atlanta for a proper funeral. And he tries to use this opportunity to basically leverage. And he, he wants an interview with them, but they haven't been too cooperative with the interview. There's a lot of, I mean, so much of this case falls into the, you know, it's it's all about this family. It was supposedly because they're wealthy and you know have some money around town or whatever. They are considered to be local celebrities almost, yeah. and I kind of just don't understand why. Like there are affluent people everywhere. Right. It seems like there was no like shortage of affluent people where they lived. Why were they getting all of these this special treatment? Um, it was really. I don't know. Well depicted here. But um, so basically they find out that Linda, the cop who was there the morning that they discovered her, they were it was a, a nightmare. She handled everything incredibly ba badly. And like Linda, I have to say, 
I always disliked her immensely and sort of retellings of this story because I was just like, what is up with this Linda chick? Linda fucked like, it up. She fucked it up. But you can also really see that they're babysitting like 12 adults who yeah. are absolutely hectic. Like every single one of them. It's like a game of Sims or something where you have to like track what each person is doing at any given time and make sure that they're not fucking up. And I guess she could have, honestly, there were so many times where I was yelling at my screen, like tell them to sit on the couch with their hands on their fucking knees, like, or get the fuck out of the house. But why are they having like this sort of bereavement ceremony already happening in the house? So we go back to the Ramsey's house 29 hours earlier to see how this all really played out for them. Um, we see them, um, you know, with the notes spread out on the floor. And we hear John Bonet say, that's mommy and daddy. Mommy was Miss West Virginia once. She put me in lots of pageants, too. She said I looked so pretty in a tiara. Um, they don't really talk too much about the pageant stuff in this movie. Which I like because they really talked about that in the 90s a lot and i even think that it was inspiration for toddlers and tiaras that show which i love i think is a great show but they almost in the 90s like fetishized her were like oh she was wise beyond her years like and and sexualized her in a way that like was very uncomfortable this was when news coverage was different but not in this movie but i'm glad they didn't talk too much about the pageant stuff yeah, I think honestly, most of the pageant stuff speaks more to like what's going on with Patsy. You know, yeah. John Bonet was not like a super sexualized child in my mind. I think that she was pageant sexualized, and most parents who put their kids into pageantry are a little off. Um, and maybe that's not necessarily fair or true, but I agree. IMO, yeah, yeah, there's there's gotta be something kind of wrong with you if you're chasing that but then again you know patsy was like in in the pageant world herself like maybe this is a thing in their family um i'm watching dirty john right now i'm recapping it for my um quarantine podcast and i also listen to the um the full podcast i i'm like so behind the ball on it but i like cannot believe the sort of generational destruction that exists in that family that always like it it completely yeah. has been so distracting and mind-blowing for me and f so frustrating that we're never going to get answers about that either like we're never going to hear what the fuck is wrong with arlene deborah's mom we're never gonna know right it's insane um okay so this next clip um is when the cops get there 525 to 603 mr ramsey listen carefully we are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. If you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. What do we got? The note says they're being watched. Talk to the cops or anyone. The girl gets beheaded. Commander got word. They're influential people. Treat them accordingly. I'll check for other exit points. I mean, if they're influential, doesn't treating them accordingly mean like giving their case extra care and treatment? Yeah. I mean, this, but this ransom note is just insane. Like, it is found to be, um, isn't it found to be part of like a movie or something like that? The, the plot yeah. of a movie? Yeah. 
So um, I forget exactly what movie it was, but yeah. John and Patsy would watch the movie of the week every week. And this was never made a big deal of, but it was like an action movie. And some of the phrasing that was in the letter was also from the movie. And it had like, it was reminiscent of the plot a little bit. Um, and wasn't that's ex- exactly what the note sounds like. Wasn't it Dirty Rotten Scoundrels or something? Something like that. Some very well-known like crime movie. I almost, I don't, I thought it was like a, um, like a Denzel Washington type thriller. I don't know why I thought that. I, I could look it up. Um, but I'm holding my mic and I really, um, I don't want to. Um, yeah. but mm-hmm. I, but in the future, I will, uh, I'll look that up and include it in the description for sure. So, okay. Um, that, that note is, it sounds like two people trying to pull something off and doing too much in the process. Yeah, I think even if you want to take it like as truth of what's inside it, the most crazy thing is that the ransom is $118,000, which is John Ramsey's the exact amount of his like annual bonus at, at work, which is just crazy. Yeah. And like he had just gotten it. But I mean, like also, I mean, so there is a little bit floated at some point about John having a disgruntled employee who, you know, would maybe be privy to information like that. But why not ask for more? Like, isn't a child's worth way more than one hundred and eighteen thousand dollars? Like, right, right, right. Given for inflation, I'm sure, you know, the Colorado market is much different than Los Angeles, but $118,000 seems like such, it's like petty cash to them. I mean, give me um, a million at least. Totally. So, um, the cop checks out uh, like around the house. He looks in the basement and like there's this door that he opens that has some like, can- pa- um, some, cans of paint on the floor, but the rest of the room is dark. Um, and it's important to remember that. So John explains that basically JonBenet went to bed that night after the Christmas party. Um, the cop notices as he's like sort of explaining this to him that there's a gigantic pee stain on her bed. And he's like, oh, she was a bedwetter. Um, and then he gets like gives him a peek at Burke who's sleeping in his bed. The bedwetting thing has always, um, I don't, it's bummed me out, dude. Like, at what point that night did she pee the bed? Like, are you at all a believer in the idea that Patsy freaked out because she just had like sort of had it with like the bedwetting and it was, you know, it was late. I've always wondered if they were drunker than they made it seem when they came home from the Mm -hmm. Christmas party. Like... I kind of feel like that does seem like a snapped moment to me. Yeah, maybe. I never thought about it like that. But wasn't there something with Burke and feces, like wiping feces on her or something like that, too? Yeah. Well, Burke, one of like his many behaviors that he displayed was like playing with his shit. And one time he did, I think, wipe it on her wall and maybe even her bed. Yeah, um, I don't think he, you know, I don't think he peed in her bed that day. But I, I don't remember that being a huge thing. Like there was like pee on her nightgown or anything. I don't right. think that that was a thing. So did they were they just not changing her sheets? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But they there's a lot of stuff in this movie that they don't really answer or account for or come back to, and that's one of them. And then she also had male DNA in her underwear, which they don't really account for at all either so 
It's that will never sit well with me. Not that it should. Not like there's anyone that should be like, well, you know, I can sleep tonight anyway. I mean, that's like pretty alarming stuff. And she did show signs of like sexual trauma, essentially. And you, but, I mean, you gotta wonder what the, what the fuck was going on there. I know, but in the in the CBS documentary, Warner Spitz dismissed it, or like whoever dismissed it as somebody who made it could be anything, like that the DNA could be the person who manufactured the underwear or something like that. And I was like, what? Really? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if it was like brand new underwear and they took it straight out of the package and put it on her, like I could see that being a possibility. Um, but yeah, I mean, if they didn't have any, any more, anything more substantial than that, I don't know what they could do. So Patsy is like making a big show of crying in the living room. And I say a big show because she quite obviously looks through her fingers to see if the cop is like, watching her performance. Um, I, if I had tried to cover up that my son had murdered my daughter, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even know how to act. Like I would, I would fucking fumble that so hard. I would be the worst at lying about something like that. Oh my God. Totally. I think it didn't come naturally to them, which is why they were just such odd characters. But The family friends show up, the white family, and these are like their BFFs, Fleet and Priscilla. So, um, you know, the cops don't really say anything when all these people charge into the living room to like come hang out with them, which has always just struck me as so odd that they even thought to invite friends over. Right. um, And that they stayed in the house. And supposedly they're waiting for this phone call that's going to come from the people who are holding her hostage. The small but, foreign faction. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, Fleeco's looking for John Bonet and he's calling her name around the house. And like, it, this was just so bizarre. Cause like the way it was depicted, like, it's just like, why would you do that? Like, it seems so strange. And in, in the, I don't know, the stakes seemed like it had already escalated to a point that there was no way this little girl was hiding in the house, like right. alive. Right. So he spots a suitcase near a small window in the garage. Do you know what the name of those windows are? No, but like little basement windows. Yeah. That's what I would call them. <laughs> and um, he sees a piece of glass next to the, suitcase on the floor and then he puts it on the window ledge so there's dna there now that piece of evidence is compromised and like you know at this point like you know these people are sort of young enough that they would probably be exposed in pop culture to the concept of not tampering with a crime scene and I think a lot of these things that were happening were accidental. Um, you know, he probably just absentmindedly picked up a piece of glass and put it on the ledge. But these are all the reasons why we have no fucking idea what happened in that house. Right. Um, so Patsy retells the story of how she realized Dominate was missing. And it already doesn't align with the story that she told the cops. Um, the events are out of order. She originally said she checked her room and then came downstairs and found the note. And then now she's telling Priscilla that she came down, she found the note and then she checked her room. Um, I, if this actually happened to me, I probably would have a hard time keeping track of everything that had happened. I probably, 
you know, I probably wouldn't be the most reliable narrator myself. But Flea continues to look around and he gets to like this, you know, small room that's mostly empty. Again, it's just the stray paint cans. So then John is going to wake up Burke and send him to Flint's house for the day. They don't want him to see how upset Patsy is or really know what's going on. So the police go in and take photos of his room. Um, Steve is like, you know, in the situation room at the station, you know, posting pictures of each one of them and setting up probably one of the most epic serial killer style, like tracing map things that I've ever seen in a lifetime movie. Oh my God. It was incredible. Incredible. It was insane. I know. And when you think about the sheer amount of like information we just had as the public about this case, like I can't imagine. God, I wish I could like read the that indictment. So, um, yeah. So then John Bonet says, these are the people who come when bad things happen to good people. I wish they could help me remember what happened that night. <laughs> so I assume that was some sort of like social worker group or something. But then these people fucked up the crime scene more than anyone. They the were people- like advocates or something like victims advocates. They were called. Yeah. And they all had like these sort of, you knew who they were because they had these name tags on. And I will say, you know, I watched this movie on my computer. So, you know, it's obviously wasn't the most gigantic screen, but a problem for me throughout this movie is that the lighting makes people look different in every scene. Like I couldn't have seen Steve's face more fucking times and, and been more confused about it. Like every single time I saw him, I just thought he was another detective same because they also didn't do a great job of like establishing the names of people like there's someone who i'm just referring to in my notes as steve's partner but i don't know who the fuck he is like who the guy with the glasses um the guy with the beard who looks like a tv dad yeah with the yeah i know who you mean maybe he had glasses i don't know i i that's always a problem and granted this is based off of real life so they were probably aiming to achieve more than they were like to establish different people. But um, yeah, so they ask a uh, fleet to return the camera with um, the photos that they took from dinner the night earlier. So Flint and uh, fleet and Burke go like they ride together and, you know, he keeps looking in the back seat at Burke and sees that he's just sort of checked out. Um, he doesn't, seem to really care or be concerned. I think most kids would be asking a million questions if they were woken up with police in their home. Um, and, you know, he's basically... Burke's just concerned about his video games. Burke doesn't give a shit about anything. Like, th- it's it's what's so crazy about this kid is that people, are, you know, keep talking about how Burke is like, you know, oh, he's just a kid. Like, kids react differently. I think most kids are mostly inquisitive. Yeah, he's a Burke is a weird little dude. I don't know if he's like on the autism spectrum or what, but he's fucking weird. Yeah, I I agree that with the theories that he might be somewhere on the spectrum because uh, it's just it's like the most generous thing I can do, honestly, <laughs> is just assume <laughs> that, that he's neurotypical. So um, another detective at 7.54 p.m. So an- Linda, um, this is where JonBenet introduces us to Linda, um, who was the one running the house that day. And she said she seems like she was really nice, like she really cares. Um, so... Uh, Fleet wants to know, or maybe there's another family friend there. I again, I couldn't tell these fucking people apart. So many people. 
Yeah, wants to know um, if the note was written after midnight because maybe they're going to be calling the next day. Um, and Linda's like, well, either way, it can't hurt to like have the whole setup here so we can do this. Um, and like, what about the 118K? What about foreign faction? Like, mm-hmm. do any of those things mean anything to you? And John's, they're both just like, I don't fucking know. So then Patsy says maybe it was their housekeeper because she did recently ask for a raise and she didn't get it. And she has a key. And at that point, I was like, fuck you. Like, Mm -hmm. don't blame your my housekeeper is like my fucking best friend, dude. Like, I can't imagine selling out your housekeeper at a time like this. So shitty. Um, But uh, so, yeah. So anytime the police like pick something up in the house to like bring it to evidence or even like dust for fingerprints. One of these victim advocates like comes along and wipes it up. Like they're actively destroying this crime scene. Um, so the white family um, that's there, Priscilla, Patsy's best friend, looks kind of suspicious about what she's seeing. Something about all this doesn't sit well with Patsy. Um, something doesn't sit well with uh, Patricia. Basically she's watching Patsy praying on the couch and she's just sort of like, it seems like odd behavior to her. And it is like when you, you, when you know your best friend and all of a sudden they're like taking notes from a different playbook, like you, that's something only a best friend would really know. Yeah. I think in this moment we get the weird zoom in as well, where like throughout this, um, whole first part, she's wearing, Patsy's wearing this gigantic cross. And then when she finds out her, her daughter is dead, we get a weird like zoom in on her face and her robot eyes as she's praying. And it's so fucking creepy to me. Dude, in that scene, she literally looked like um Chloe Feynman. I think that's her name. Chloe is crazy. She yeah. seemed like Chloe doing a character. A character. It was Yeah. It yeah, it was completely manic. So, um what's her face? Priscilla start like has a little vision of Daphne, her daughter, and John Bonet running um running up to show them their friendship bracelets and sort of thinking about how they're gone now. And um yeah, JonBenet says that once her best friend Daphne hit is a joke. Um, but that morning when she was hiding, it wasn't a joke. <laughs> oh. Um, okay, thanks, JonBenet. <laughs> thanks for checking in. So um Steve is taking in evidence um in his office, and it's clear that he has no idea what's going on, but he obviously knows something is very wrong here. And Steve like rode for this case so hard. That's what this I mean, that's what this movie is telling me, basically. Totally. Um and it's always important to note like what who your hero is in the story because that's like completely that's where the bias comes from especially in a lifetime movie they can only go so much to like sort of nuance these things so um the cop collects one of the cops there collects the writing samples from john and patsy and they hand over the pads of paper to him um so at this point patsy's so upset that she's throwing up and Linda and an, another cop who I don't know his name either, but he's um like a big gruff sort of like leathery guy. Um, I think it's Detective Frank Quinn. Um, so he says that, you know, basically they should release anyone that doesn't need to be there so that there could be a strategy session. Um, and he leaves it on to Linda to basically like hold down the fort. And this was one of the other totally fatal errors because um, he's, you know, I think he's going to go interview Burke or something at the fleet's house. But 
um, once he leaves her alone, she tries to get them to all stay in one room and just like keep the foot traffic to a minimum. Um, and Patsy's crying is finally calmed a little bit. And Linda wants to interview her about the housekeeper. But then Patsy says she's had like a change of heart. It probably couldn't be the housekeeper. I mean, it doesn't even look like her writing. So then, um, Priscilla comes into the room and is like, I think we should change Jean-Benet's sheets. Um, and Linda's just like, dude, I want to like, how can I stop you people? So at that point, she gets up and starts looking for John. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of DNA being spread everywhere. Um, eventually, she finds John at the kitchen table and he's just like nervously tapping his foot and rereading the letters from the kidnappers. Um, and that nervous sort of leg motion, dude. Oh, oh my God. There's nothing I hate more in life than being around a tapper. I can't stand a tapper. It oh. like first triggers my misophonia for sure. But like there's something about a fidgeter that really, it really gets on my nerves. Um, so she asked him, um, he's like, you know, have you ever seen John like this? She asked Fleet and he's like, you know, I've never seen him in a situation quite like this. Um, and so he's still totally on his side at this point and really trying to process what's going on here. Um, but yeah, so Fleet and John, Linda, for some reason, tells Fleet and John, why don't you go just like look around in the basement one more time? Um, and then he's asked John about the broken window and John explains that sometimes over the summer he broke his window to let himself in and he's been meaning to fix that. So he leaves the room and he goes looking in the others and there's one door almost at the end of the hall that has like basically a latch on top of it that you could really only open if you were tall enough to like reach it. Um, and it's completely like makeshift. And I think that is one of the bigger things that has been going for like Burke, not doing this mm -hmm. all by himself. Um, but yeah, so he looks into the room, which is just as dark as any other time we've seen it, which is the same paint cam room. And he screams, oh, my God. And so he sees the body in like the pitch dark. And that was another thing with Fleet was that he, you know, later on said, like, how did he know the body was in there before he turned on the light? Mm. So right away, the dude just fucking mangles the little girl's body like he goes ripping the duct tape off i could never imagine doing that to a dead body i just real i like would be afraid to tear the skin i don't know why this was his reaction um <laughs> other than obviously he was intentionally tampering with the crime scene but it just seems so bizarre so he carries her upstairs and linda sees that he's coming down the hallway with the dead body and she's like put the put the body down, put the body down, don't touch anything. And then Patsy comes over and she, is, you know, she's bawling and she's like, you know, trying to put her hands on the kid. And it's just like, I, no one's going to get that perfectly. I understand. Yeah. But I mean, I thought this body scene was so gruesome and so disgusting and I hated it. And I did not want, because the body they showed her full dead body and she was blue and bleeding. And it's like, I don't need any of that. I know this was like, we're already hearing her creepy voice. Like, I don't need her like blue dead body. You know what I mean? 
Well, no, absolutely. Because that's like one thing that we've never really been privy to was like the state of her body when she was found. And obviously at that point, she had been dead for hours. So like, you know, rigor mortis had set in like there was some of the earlier signs of like a body decaying. And it was very graphic. Like, I don't feel like there was any reason to need to show close ups of that and make it worse than it already was. I, I feel like this poor girl has been as much as I like desperately want to know what happened with her. And I understand all the fanfare. I can't understand like, I don't know if there is another side, if she is up in heaven watching us right now, I just feel so bad for her. Mm-hmm. Like the way what she's have to had to watch play out about her life. What are, I mean, it's just, it's bizarre. It's, it's honestly, this case blows my mind. So, um, but I think, next- but speaking, okay. of the, speaking of the latch, I think in the CBS documentary, they say that they think that the John helped, Burke moved the body or something that maybe she um he that Burke might have killed her in a different room and then moved her down to there and that's how he knew it was in there and that's how like he could reach the latch but I don't know that was just their hypothesis oh yeah I mean I don't I, th- I don't think it's like a huge mystery that he put her down there at all like I think that he was killing time till it seemed long enough mm-hmm. for him to go investigate the body I mean they did show him sort of taking a passing look in some of the other rooms but he definitely walked to that door and yeah. I think that's something I remember Fleet talking about because obviously Fleet and Priscilla are no longer friends with the Ramses. they wound up feeling like right away like they needed to I mean about a year in they started to take a real stand and we see that in this movie but I mean, he was said, you know, I feel like John just walked straight back to that door, like almost as if he was ready to unveil that the body was still there. Um, so Linda's basically on the phone at this point, demanding backup at the house because the crime scene has been just completely obliterated. Um, there's even a priest there now. Um, let's play 2143 to 23 minutes. <laughs> Yes, now. I'm all alone here. He didn't mean to kill her. No, he, he, he wrapped her with, with a blanket. Oh, God. John, no. Uh, please, nobody touch her. Please, uh, please. My little angel. It's got to be an inside job. I, I don't know. <laughs> no. 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 most iconic lifetime cry we've seen in years like 
Tori Spelling could never. Unbelievable. Could never. So it's unclear to me whether this is bad acting or whether this is actors acting like the parents are overdoing it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I mean, they are portraying, you know, to the best of their ability. It's also, you know, that's very lifetime. That's very on brand with lifetime. <laughs> Just sort of these like half baked performances, like people, you know, it's so testing much. out their acting chops. I mean, they all they they work with the material they're given. You know what I mean? I sometimes always have a really hard time pinpointing who to blame. Um, is it the acting? Is it the directing? Is it the writing? I I think a lot of times it is direction in these movies that makes it really suffer. But I think they use non union actors too, so I think it's the acting too. Um, sometimes they use non-union like Canadian day players, but for the most part, a lot of these people have very full careers. Really? Um, let's look up Patsy Ramsey. She's played by Julia Campbell, um, who was Christine Masters in Romy and Michelle's, by the way. Wow. Do you, like she's the one, um, she's like the main bitch in that movie. Um, she's done, you know, she's, she's done a lot of series. Um, Tell Me a Story, The Resident. Um, she was on Awkward, Recovery Road, Austin and Alley. She's worked a decent amount. She had a really long role on Dexter, it seems like, like a six-episode arc. Um, well, to be clear, I didn't think the acting in this Lifetime movie was bad. I think this scene is bad. That's why I think it's the acting, the actors making the choice to play it like the fa- parents are overdoing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's like sort of the theatrics of it all, for sure. Like it's, um, you know, I started to wonder, especially during this scene when John then flips and says it has to be an inside job. Like, what did he mean by that? Like, who who is under the umbrella of being inside? Um, And I start to wonder, like, did they brainstorm on just like weird ass theories to potentially throw out? I don't know, but it's crazy. But what I'm wondering is, do you think, like, what's with the window, the broken window? Do you think he did that on purpose to make it look like there was an intruder? Um, I think that he was, actually. I think that they were very lazy about certain aspects of their home. Okay. I think that it's totally plausible that he forgot his keys and broke a window. That's something, like, homeowners do. Hopefully not all the time, but it's it's not unheard of. Um, but like, you know, the the door didn't have great reinforced locks. Like Patsy didn't check any of that stuff. They very much lived a sheltered life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was more worried, honestly, when I when I saw that he had let that broken window go for so long that you know, I'm like, what about the fucking temperature in your house, dude? Like, what about just like having the elements come inside your house? Totally. Um, but and and to let it go for that long, like you have too much potential for help to not replace that goddamn window. Right. Um, but yeah, so um, Patsy has taken, um, you know, that. <laughs> diazepam or whatever and she is completely passed out on the floor um and john sort of you know cries as he watches her on the floor and the next day at work linda's you know this is cutting back to where we started linda's talking about what happened that morning to the detectives and we get a rare uh lifetime swear 
So I'm going to play that scene as well. It's 2322 to 2606. It was a shitstorm. I was at the autopsy this morning. And there's a six-year-old girl with an eight-inch crack in her skull and a garrote around her neck. And you know what they're trying to figure out? What? Which one of those killed her? And when and what and for how long someone was shoving something inside of her? Signs of sexual abuse? Do the parents have any ideas? A few, but we can't talk to them since it's... We thought it was a kidnapping. These are influential people. Everyone was treating it all with kid gloves, hugging the body, cleaning up a murder scene. I moved the body, Steve. It's all contaminated. I don't even know why I... Thomas, someone here to see you. Yeah. Mr. Ramsey, you can't walk away from an active crime scene. They're getting my plane ready. I have important business in Atlanta. Your daughter? We, we have unfinished business here. You can't go to Atlanta or anywhere else. We can't stay here another moment. We obviously have to talk to you your wife, and your son. You'll stay with us. Uh, I'll call you back. Just uh, give us a day. Please. We've just lost our daughter. only have one bad thing happen, but this isn't a story. This is real life. Lots of bad things happen in real life, at least in mine. This is a mistake. We should be taking them downtown, separating them. It's the commander's call. Wow. So much manipulation on on the part of John, too. Like, not just trying to skip town, but then when they're like, no, you have to stay. Your daughter was just murdered. He's like, please, my daughter was just murdered. <laughs> like, there's, Amazing. you know, I'm sorry. It's not convenient. Like, I, I, you know, I have to say it can't be probably any more convenient than on December 26th for your daughter to get murdered brutally in your house but like these are the things you got to do guys you got to talk to the police you got to cooperate you know this is in the best interest of finding out what happened to your daughter unless you don't want people to find out what happened to your daughter but no they don't because they're rich white people so they can do whatever they want obviously I know their wealth was I mean, this guy has a plane at his fingertips and you're telling me they wanted one hundred and eighteen thousand dollars. Like, <laughs> come on. Um, so wait, they, um, wait, oh, go ahead. Do you think it's sus that the other daughter died, too? 
I don't think it's sus. I mean, I don't think that like John had anything to do with his daughter's car accident, but it definitely increases the stakes for why they would want to make sure that Burke was protected. Yeah. I don't know any of the details surrounding that car accident. Like, I wonder if that was there was something fishy about that as well. Yeah, I think that I looked into that in the past. And like, from what I remember, it was, you know, just your everyday car crash. I don't think it was like faulty brakes or something or, but um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that as this clip was playing just in terms of like the Burke of it all. Like what happens if a nine-year-old murders someone? I don't know. Is he gonna- like especially if you if he got hit over the head, like if she got hit over the head, and that was the if they you had, know if they had just admitted it, then this would all be over. Like Burke would be out of juvie or whatever, and like we all would have forgotten about this case by now, and he could have a normal life. Totally, and I mean to your other point, they are a wealthy white family. Like they can really sort of buy their way out of this by totally. even saying to the judge, "We'll send him somewhere that's like really good and like incentivize him to not give them some sort of like juvenile detention sent- sentence." Like, I mean, this sounds like it could have been an accident in a lot of ways if he really did take his train track and like you know stab her head with it i i think that that is something that just sounds like a kid freaking out except this time it was fatal and he definitely liked to beat up on his sister i mean he had hit her with a golf club in the yard the summer before like this is a kid that resorts to strange tactics and violence to get attention for sure um and and you know he probably did need some sort of reforming yeah and it's it's scarier that he's out on the street than anything. I mean, if I if that was my child, I would like to think that I would I would get them help instead of protecting them and keeping them in a bubble all these years. Yeah, I when um the CBS documentary first aired, his social media was still public. It wasn't private yet. So I was able to see like his Instagram and his Twitter. And it was very like mundane. There was like nothing to note, really. So, which makes me think he's even more on the spectrum (laughs) for some reason. Right. Like, he just, like, lives very unaffected by this and is just sort of a vanilla, boring person. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's what I got from his appearance on Dr. Phil. Outside of, like, the really eerie smiling and sort of the lack of emotion. I mean, it it was really just, um, you know, it was unsettling because it, it just was... He seems so normal. I mean, this guy has a girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Woof. I mean, imagine signing. I I know that anyone can get a a boyfriend. I know that anyone wants to date. You know, there's always going to be someone for someone like this that is even maybe attracted to the fact that he's Burke Ramsey. But I cannot imagine like calling up my mom and being like, yeah, I'm dating a really great guy. Um, He actually is JonBenet's brother. Um, so yeah, where the where the uh, detective, our leather daddy, went was to go see Burke at the Fleet's house, and you know he's sitting at the table drinking a glass of milk and eating a sandwich, and you know having no problem with his appetite. It's just a normal conversation, and he says that he woke up and his dad said Jamine was missing, and he has you know no idea when he woke up. He never heard anything that night. He says he went to bed and he heard the um like you know. Normally at night, the only noise he hears is like the water heater squeaking. Um, He said there was no arguing. Um, 
And then he said that his, he like, he then reiterates his father woke him up and that John and said John was missing. Um, and then he goes, wait, are we still going to Michigan? And the detective's like, what do you guys do in Michigan? He's like, oh, we go like water skiing. And, you know, he's going over like the fun activities they do. And the detective tries to like, you know, circle it back and get back into the, you know, questions that are necessary. And he's like, can I go play video games? So he's not, I can't imagine any child would be excited to have this conversation, but it's like they're pointing to colors and like asking him, you know, like oh what, what it is. This is a very light questioning. Yeah. And then the thing that gets me later and I don't know, and I, it's one of those moments where I can't tell if it's historical footage from the interview or if it's recreated footage is when he asks one of the detectives if he's wearing a Rolex. Like that's wild. Yeah, that's all recreated. The original videos are available online from like the original sort of questioning that was all released when the documentaries were made a few years back. And I mean, he's completely blase in those interviews as well. Wild. And just big on changing the subject, like doesn't understand the seriousness of why he's there, which, you know, if he is innocent in all of this, good for him. To, like, not have to focus on the horror of his sister being murdered. Like, you know, that's that is a coping mechanism. It is one. So, um, yeah, the cops replay the 911 call and they start to fixate on the part of the call where Patsy didn't hang up. And this is the 911 operator basically bringing it to them and saying there's something really weird about this call. Um, and it sounded like her voice, but not so hysterical. And she was talking to someone nearby. So they decide that this is going to be their big thing. This is going to be the secret that they keep. Cops always have to keep a couple secrets. Um, and that the FBI and secret service, well, you know, they're the ones who typically handle something like this. So then they go to see the forensic, um, handwriting expert guy, which I love. We had a movie about a, a handwriting expert and it was, I loved it. I love it when I can like geek out on someone else's mm. profession. It's the best part of like any law and order when they go see the Emmy. So they, um, you know, he basically says this is like the war and peace of ransom notes. Like normally people just get to the point and say like, I need this much money or I'm going to kill your kid. Um, and then he notices that on the pad that was handed into them with the handwriting samples, there's a page, if you flip back, that says Mr. and Mrs. So basically, you know, practice mm. uh, for the note that wound up getting handed in. And it's a very different style of handwriting. Um, so then that's when he realizes that the pad that he has with the samples from John and Patsy is the same one that was um, the same one that the note was written on. It lines up perfectly. So the detective, um, Steve, he watches some videos of Jamini's pageants and home life. And I mean, this guy threw his life into this case. It seems like he would return to these tapes all the time yeah. to the point where I was like, come on, Steve, like how many more times do you have to watch her with the hose in the yard? Like there's no evidence <laughs> in there. Right. Like It seems like you already are fond enough of this girl. You don't need to remind yourself, but, um, and he, to your point, oh, to, to your point about the ransom note, they say in the CBS documentary that, um, no killer is going to sit there and write out like three pages of ransom. Like if they're an intruder and write out this long ass ransom note when they're just trying to take the kid and get some money and leave. 
Of course not. Like, that's the biggest loophole in the story is how, like, you know, especially because of some of the language that was used in there. Like, that's no one's, like, natural narrative and writing style. No. Like, so um, there's, you know, they're looking through um, the Flea family and the cops are looking through, like, the same sort of pictures. They're having a little film moment there where they're intercutting the two of them. There is one where Burke is, like, looking back with a little bit of contempt. Um, and then there's another one where he's just totally disconnected from his mom and her um, in that picture. And it's very clear that JonBenet was the favored child. So... We see a flashback to that night of, um, you know, Christmas when Jomini and the family are leaving. Um, oh, sorry. They're playing uh, the fleet's daughter, Daphne, and Jomini are playing together. And then we see a moment of Patsy sort of goofing around as she sets the table. Like, this is where the fleets are starting to remember some of these things and just how normal it all seemed and how it didn't line up with what they saw the next day. Um, and... Fleet comes in and says that the Ramsey's lawyer wants to talk with them. Um, you know, because they always go for the parents first, they like decide to engage their lawyer to have their back. Um, and, you know, Priscilla turns to him and says that her bed, Patsy's bed didn't look slept in that night. And Patsy was wearing the same outfit that she was wearing the night before. And she thinks that, you know, she probably didn't go to bed at all that night. And then going back to their last memory, she flashes back to the family leaving the house on Christmas night and JonBenet yelling, Merry Christmas, as she's carried out in her dad's arms. Um, I I hate it. I hate the flashbacks. I hate it. It's awful. It's also awful because, like, kids are just the worst fucking actors. <laughs> I am going to play this scene with Daphne when they tell her that she's no longer with us. But I mean, it's just so awful when the kids have to act in these movies because I, I just I, I got to shit on them. Like they just they don't really have a place in a movie like this when like the directing and all that stuff isn't really there. There's just no place for a child. Um so now we're on day three. It's 2.18 p.m. The detectives pull up to Fleet's house, the White House. And um, let's play this clip 3109 to 3209. Mrs. White? Yes? Detectives Thomas and Gossage with the BPD. Do you mind if we ask you a couple of questions? Uh... We already talked to your, your colleagues. Why not? Everyone else has. You just missed the last bunch. Who was that? Some private investigators from John's lawyers. Yeah? What did they want? Well, basically to know what we'd already told you, or anyone else. Are they concerned about something? Well, I guess you'd have to ask them. Mr. White, Mrs. White... I want you to know that in cases like this, it's natural to look at the immediate family first, eliminate any... Yeah, that's what John says the lawyers are for. The shift focused to where it should be. And where's that? You're the police. You don't have any leads? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, like, they're old friends in a weird way, and something happened between them, the way that Steve and the White family are talking. I mean, it's interesting to see how quickly the whites knew something was off. It seems like Priscilla knew when she walked into the house that day that not everything was adding up. Right away, she knew. And and the amount of screen time she's given shows like 
we're, you know, supposed to glean that she knew as well. Um, so yeah, uh, that same day, the Ramseys show up to give their DNA to the forensic team. And of course they bring their lawyer who make it clear that, you know, it's their legal right to just give their DNA and not be questioned or anything like that. So then they show a team of people that are there to take everyone's DNA. Um, it's basically like a security cam moment where they're showing us. It's they're very artistic over at Lifetime. <laughs> and then, um, you know, we see Patsy, John, Burke enter. Then we see the step siblings are there too. John is the first to go. Um, and then we go to 4.23 a.m. Um, I don't know why. Oh, PM. Sorry. The Ramsey family uh, provides this forensic sample. So we can see um, prints, hair, saliva samples, blood. At one point, they do a cut in on someone's tongue. And dude, like brush your tongue. If you're doing a close up on your tongue, please like. That is your tongue's moment to shine. I don't know if we were supposed to understand that these characters are extremely dehydrated after days of crying. That person is never going to be a tongue model ever. Yeah, it was re- it was really unfortunate because they also had a lot of tongues to pick from. And for some reason, they decided to spotlight that one. Right. So they decide to take photos of everyone and just to have them on the record. And Burke is smiling in his photo. I mean, it, the step siblings just like dead inside. John looks a little concerned, but then Patsy, her photo is a little bit more haunting than that. It's off. She's a little off center in frame. Again, she totally looks like a Chloe Feynman impression. I think mm-hmm. that's her last name. She, it's this actress. <laughs> <laughs> the more I look at her, the more I kind of think it's brilliant that they cast a comedic actress in this movie to play Patsy. Um, but that night, the White family, um, they decide to break the news to their daughter that John Bonet has passed. I'm surprised they got away with it for like four days. Um, and then um, in, we're after that, we're going to hear a clip of day four. John Bonet is um, funeral. And then we're going to hear Patsy. It's like it's also Patsy's birthday. And then we're going to hear that there's cops watching everything. And it's already turning into a media circus. This is a longer clip. We're going to play 3358 to 3650. Daddy and I have something to tell you. And it's going to make you feel really sad inside. But it's okay. John Bernay is gone. What do you mean, John Bernay is gone? To heaven, sweetie. Is she coming back? No. What happened to her? She... Nobody knows for sure, honey. (sighs) Today's mommy's birthday. That's sad. And let us say, Amen. Amen. Please let the family pass and then join us afterwards for a reception. <laughs> 
That's the housekeeper. Whose handwriting looks nothing like the note. Nope. Detectives! Detectives! Just a couple of questions, please. It's an active investigation. You know we can't comment. The chief is going to call a press conference, all right? Can I just have a moment of your time, please? Is it true you're ransoming the body for an interview? The body's going to Atlanta today for a funeral on Tuesday. You could go ask the Ramses. I wonder who told her that. Here come the Ramses. John! Patsy, why not have Patsy? John! Tell me you can share what you're feeling right now, your level of frustration. Any comments, John? Do you have any ideas of my Good morning. Difficult day. John, you and Elder at the time of her death, John Andrew. Get out of my way. Tell us if you want more. Get the mic out of here. Let's, yeah, let's go through it. So Daphne, God bless her. I really, I didn't need to hear from a kid in this movie. Mm -hmm. It just really brought, it brought the mood down (laughs) a little bit. Um, I will say that I think it's kind of unbelievable that the white family stayed through like all of this. Now I understand that like, now isn't really the time to like disown your friend, but like how pain, how painful that must have been for them to sort of go through every moment of the funeral process and the beginning of this, knowing already that there's something off and that your best friends may have murdered their daughter. Totally. So weird. And also in this um, last scene here with the media, we sort of established that there are some internal leaks in the police department um, that are going out. And this was a huge thing. I mean, the amount of press that this case got and the new developments that happened, you know, I remember all the way through that summer after this murder happened, you know, books were already out and, you know, like those paperback books that they sell at every grocery store of just like Mm -hmm. the first person, you know, at like the amount of police cooperation with the media was really disturbing for the lack of what we know to be like the lack of sort of evidence and results that they got out of this. And it makes me think like of, Lori Vallow, even like where like, you know, we're just I don't know if we're ever really going to know what happened there because we're dealing with people who keep secrets. And, you know, Steve, I have to say, come on, Steve, why are you sending the media after the Ramses at their daughter's funeral? Like, oh, my gosh. Like, go ask them. Like, I don't really think this is the time, Steve. But and like, I, I think we all know they're liars, but the next time, um, it's day six. Uh, they're in Marietta, Georgia. They're laying her to rest. And Burke is really emotionless during the funeral, um, kind of checked out. And then Patsy, what, uh, 
you know, leans down and whispers something into his ear and sort of sends him toward the casket. And he really starts to tear up a bit. And Patsy looks on sort of almost smiling. And I got to know what she said to him. Like, do you think she said, like, you killed your sister? The least you can do is go say goodbye. I thought it was so weird that she was smiling. Like, that shot was so creepy to me. And but also it is problematic to, like, go so much off of the behavior of people after a tragedy happens because you don't know how you're going to react. Like when you're a kid, I don't know, like when my grandparents died, I was like, I didn't really care. You know what I mean? Like you can't practice the emotions and the gravity of everything that's happening. So it's, it's hard to like base it off of that, you know? I totally agree. I think the only issue here with that is like, it's, it's difficult to process weird on weird. Like if they weren't just weird to begin with, I think there would be much more of like a curveball or like a grace given to them where you're just sort of like, oh, like they're going, you know, they're they're going through it like people grieve differently. But it's almost like, you know, sort of like the Scott Peterson, like Chris Watts effect where it's just the attention, the way that they interact with attention is so strange. Yeah, Um, they love it. And they t- they're telling on themselves. And I think that that is, you know, the part where you you say, yeah, they love it. Like, why? who would love this? Like, what kind of people would love this? You know, um, who, you know who would love this? It's people who put their daughters in a pageant and name their daughter their own names. So, I know. <laughs> like, I know. John Bonet was named after john bennett ramsey it's not even like a french thing it's like a combined john bonnet john bonnet patricia ramsey and patricia was the mother so like they are narcissists that's the kind of people that love this attention i do love that she's the first like famous person in my world that had like a made-up name yeah <laughs> like at this like now it's sort of like par for the course like the mormons are out here naming their kids like insane shit insane it shit. happens all the time like god um jessa from like 19 kids and counting named her son spurgeon <laughs> oh i saw that but that's some mormon history person or some shit i don't know totally but like it's just not it's not easy on the ears or the mouth no and, um it's it's just like you know it's a it's a real choice and i always was sort of fascinated by this particular choice because the name works it i mean it works we've said it for years um but yeah it was it was really the first like sort of time i'd ever seen anything like that before that's true um so patsy's mother and like you know i guess the older kids from john's first marriage they're all in her living room watching the news and her mom's living room is basically a museum of patsy's pageantry life yes and that's also where I'm a little bit feeling the Arlene from Dirty John vibes because I'm like, you know, maybe this is just what Patsy knows. Maybe she was a narcissist who was raised by a narcissist, you know, maybe because she does, you know, to Patsy's credit, although I think she's being a little, you know, it's it was a little strange how she handled it. She comes in you know, basically shuts the TV off and says like, you know, there are children here. And she like gives everyone in the room like a really filthy look that just felt very like shame on you. But it also seemed very, it seemed to come from like a narcissistic place, like the way that the actress played it. Mm. 
Yeah. It was less of like a hurt. It was more of just like how fucking like how dare you? Um, it made me it made me kind of scared of her in that moment. I was like, I wouldn't be shocked if everyone in her family was a little bit scared of her. Yeah, and I I was yeah, this family has a lot of secrets for sure. Shit's scary. Total secrets. And well, okay, so back to the garrote really quickly, or we haven't even touched on it. But okay, so Patsy's dad was a sailor and he was in the Navy and like boats were life in his house. And the garrote, it was always, you know, such a strange thing because it wasn't a Boy Scout knot. It wasn't a knot that you would really know unless you had some sort of maritime experience in your past. Mm. And a lot of people were pointing to the fact that on Patsy's dad's headstone, there there is like an engraved knot on that headstone. So like maybe they were a big knot family. Ooh, they're big knot heads. I never heard that. Yeah, like I was wondering, like either this family fucking loves some knots or they pulled out a book and like figured out how to make that thing. Like I but where would they have like, what would be the resource? And, how, like, who even really knows how to do something like that? It's not a common skill. You know Burke is, like, up in his room, like, reading a book on knots and, like, trying to, like, think of ways to kill his sister. You know that that's the kind <laughs> of kid that does that shit. Right. No, absolutely. I, Of course, that's my opinion. Please don't sue me, Burke Ramsey. No, I totally agree. He's that kid who's like on his next shit. Like I raised a bunch of money to buy kids um, Christmas presents this year through Operation Santa. And you have to like pick the letter um, and like be like, okay, I'm adopting this kid. And so I adopted this one kid just because his only Christmas wishes were a metal detector and a safe. Yes. And I was like, oh, he's just on his next level. Like he's worried about yes. his money. He's an entrepreneur. Like, of course, I bought him both. And then I like wrote the parents a card and I gave them the other key because I was just like, I don't I don't trust him. I don't trust Nikki and his, you know, metal detector. By the way, Nikki, if for some reason you're listening to this, reach out to me. It breaks my heart that I'll never know you kids. So oh. um yeah, that was the hardest part. Is like I'm never gonna know them, girl. Like it kind of destroys me because I feel like I know them. He's, but anyway. He seems really cool, though. That kid seems really cool. That he's badass. Like that's I always would think that way too. I just didn't have. I I don't think anyone would have entertained me, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's kind of why I had to take him up on it because I was like, no one's gonna buy you this. I'll buy you this. <laughs> um, okay, so. Um, John talks with Fleet the next day, who's basically just trying to reason with him and giving him the optics on everything. Like, this is his friend that cares about him enough to take the time and be like, this is looking really bad. I'm going to play this scene. But like, just, you know, sort of the kindness and patience, honestly, that this would take. I think that I would have a hard time even leveling with my best friend four days after their kid was murdered and be like, you look terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so 3849 to 4058. Hiding behind lawyers, PIs, and crisis management firms is not the answer, John. You look like OJ in the Bronco. We're not confident in how the police are handling this. And we're going to put up a $50,000 reward for information. Like OJ. What you do in the next 24 hours is going to define the rest of your life. 
You need to come back to Boulder and talk to the police. Patsy needs to talk to them. We do, we all do, to find out what happened to John Bonet. You're making it look like you're involved. And we're going to tell them we're not. We've made arrangements to go on CNN. CNN? And get all this cleared up. Stop it from getting out of control. You need to talk to the police, not CNN. Please. As your friends, for the both of you, for Burke, come back to Boulder. When Mommy and Daddy went on TV, it was the first time most people saw them. But on TV, Mommy doesn't even sound like herself. And she looks so sad. We are also assembling an investigative team assist we have want, to find I want the best minds this country has to offer there is a killer on Absolutely. the loose I don't know who it is I don't know if it's a he or a she but if I were a resident of Boulder I would tell my friends to keep Your baby's close to you. There's there. Wow. I mean, I don't think it was the TV that was making your mom uh, sound funny, JonBenet. But, um, I mean, okay, so many things here. I have to say, they bring up a very good thing, Fleet and Priscilla, about OJ. And realizing that this was post-OJ sort of makes me really think about like where people were with the justice system at that point and sort of what rich people could get away with, with enough complications and lawyers, because yeah. it would have been difficult to, you know, with, especially with no evidence, it would have been really difficult to get a jury to make a decision about this. And of course, you know, a jury did later make a decision about this. But I think at that point, so much time had passed that people just wanted it behind them. And it was so obvious. I mean, I, I think it would be almost impossible to have a jury that wasn't tampered with in some capacity um, in a case like this. But it really, you know, it, it really made me think like, oh, God, like, did they sort of did they sort of know that they would probably just be able to get away with this if they tied up enough legal stuff? Like, was OJ the blueprint? I think when that that friend said, "This you're doing this just like OJ, they, a part of their brains just went like, ding, 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 we can be like OJ. You know, this mom's been in pageants. She wants to be famous. She's like, she was Miss West Virginia. It's like, of course they want the notoriety. I don't know. And this is my opinion. Of course, I don't know. Um, and, you know, also, uh, it's the CNN of it all. Like, yeah. that would have been truly, if not, like, the beginning of the end hadn't already happened. That would be the very beginning of the end for me, seeing that they were more willing to talk to the people on the news and like sort of recover their public image than they were about finding the killer of their daughter. It just seems so disingenuous um, to be honest. And like their logic is obviously flawed. Um, so, you know, that, that news scene was 
so uncomfortable. Like neither of them were necessarily groomed for this. Like just because you were Miss Wisconsin or whatever doesn't mean you know how to successfully that's true fool people into thinking, you know, oh well, she's clearly innocent. And I mean, if you're, I don't know, I don't know. But the Zans, dude, the Zans, Zans. Like, they were popping. Wait, and also this was a time in history when like our attention was much less fragmented. Like we weren't, we didn't have a million streaming services. We didn't have TikTok. We didn't have all this other shit to look at. So people were watching the OJ trial. People were watching the JonBenet. It was like the thing that people were watching and looking at. And it was everywhere at the time. So of course they like loved it. Yeah. Cause you could be a celebrity for being involved in something like that. People, this, our nation was like totally dialed into true crime at this point. It was like a little bit of the true crime, like heyday. Heyday. Um, but yeah, so it's day 12 now and the media is worse than ever. They ask um, some detective coming in. I believe it might be the chief. But again, these people are fucking impossible to tell apart. Um, and they say, you know, the Ramseys aren't avoiding the police at all. Like they actually answered questions for us. And then we see Steve on hot on his heels when he comes in. And he's basically like, they are not cooperating with us. They gave us a list of, of questions with yes or no answers. And now they're saying that their memories are basically wiped from that morning at this point um he tells steve you know oh you're too caught up in this you got to focus on other people like what about john's disgruntled employee and steve's like listen if they they need to bring in burke or they're gonna have cps come at their door and he's like are you threatening them and steve's like no it's the fucking law in colorado which by the way where isn't that a law like seriously (laughs) where wouldn't that be a law so Burke plays Guess Who. I love that Guess Who shout out with the child psychologist. And it seems like he's in a relatively good mood. Um, and she asks him, you know, do you normally wake up when you hear something? And he says, yeah, like the French doors. Um, but that night, nothing woke him up. Um, French doors, not particularly loud doors, um, by no. the way, not historically known as loud doors. So, um, you know, he says he's, you know, it's, it's, he's been okay since it happened. He feels safe. And she's like, well, do you know what happened? And he's like, yeah, she was killed. Um, you know, someone either quietly went down to the basement and they took a knife or they banged her on the head. And the psychologist is like, well, why don't you th- like, do you think that that would happen to you? And he says, no. So at this point, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it was brilliant because like we, this is where we get to see that Burke has a temper and it comes out of nowhere and it's really fast. She, they both have like cans of Dr. Pepper on the table where she's interviewing him and she picks up his and takes a sip of it. And he's like, that's mine. I can't drink it now. And he's very, um, you know, I just, I would have never spoken to an adult like that as a kid ever. Um, let alone, no a therapist or something in a situation like this i probably just wouldn't touch my drink again i was torn as well on whether that was intentional or not because like how could it not be intentional but then that's a weird thing to do like how do maybe she's trying to make him mad um i was torn on that as well and i also do want to say that guess who was a very of the moment game so it's perfect I loved Guess Who. Me too. I, I, it was just fun to watch someone else play it again. Uh, made me want to get some Guess Who in my life again. You know, I think the only reason why I would love to believe it was intentional is because she needed to disarm him some way. Mm. Like, whether or not this kid has armor on, it's unclear. It seems like he's just generally unfeeling, but... 
This episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. I've been subscribed to Book of the Month for three months now, and I'm obsessed. If you're a big reader or maybe even a lapsed big reader who's been wanting to get back into it regularly, consider checking it out. Book of the Month, they read like hundreds of books every month from new and emerging authors, and they whittled on the list to just the very best. They provide you a diverse little selection of hardcover fiction to pick from, which is an element of it that I really love. I can find going into the bookstore to be super overwhelming, and when I know I have about a dozen really solid options to choose from, it makes the decision way easier. Plus, it's cheaper than other options, shipping is always free, and there's a loyalty program with rewards and even lower prices if you choose to stick around. There's an app where you can pick your upcoming books and track the progress of your reading, and there are challenges on there with rewards. Your book arrives in a super aesthetically pleasing box, by the way. That's the kind of touch that I always really appreciate. Personally, I read at my own pace. Sometimes I can only get to one of my two books a month, and I keep the ones I haven't read yet on my windowsill right next to my bed so I can just see them all there. It inspires me to pick one up and read. It's nice to have options in front of you. If you're interested in trying it out, you can get your first book for $5 with code pastel at bookofthemonth.com. That's code pastel at bookofthemonth.com. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Either way, it's like kind of it's it's probably one of the better things that came out of Burke being interviewed is to see how he gets so hot all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the scene we were talking about earlier when Patsy and Linda are talking in like it seems like some sort of cafe that's attached to the precinct or wherever they are. Um, and we're going to hear after that a group of detectives um, examine the drawing that Burke did. And yes, don't worry, I did <laughs> take a screenshot of the drawings. We we love bad sketches on this show. So let's play 4414 to 4547. I thought this would be quicker. He's been up there almost an hour. I can't tell you what a hole it's left in me. John's back at work. Burke's going back to school. And me. Jean Benet was everything to me. My little Johnny B. I can't have any more children. I had cancer surgery. I'm sorry. If I lost Burke, 
I would have no reason to go on living. They don't want to take him from you, Patsy. They just want to ask him some questions. And the plane implies remoteness, distance, small stature, Patsy, insignificance, powerlessness. The fact that John Bonet isn't in it at all. A week and a half after the murder. No, it's interesting, but it's psychobabble. It's not evidence. He told the doc he was just getting on with his life. He's nine. We're getting umpteen calls a day from kids who are afraid this is going to happen to them. And this kid, who's just down the hall from where it did happen, he's not scared at all? Look, it's the same thing I said about John. There's no such thing as normal behavior after a trauma like this. It's odd, but it's not evidence. Okay, this is a perfect scene to explain exactly what I mean by (laughs) everyone looks the same in this movie. The guy who's examining the drawing is about, you know, I'd probably say like 6'1". He's wearing a blue button-down shirt with a darker tie and he has a beard and brunette hair. Then the person he's talking to who's playing devil's advocate in this movie and who is just hits um, the exact right spot of my nerves where like <laughs> I kind of can't take a person. He is also about the same height, wearing the same colored shirt, also has a beard. Like if you're not paying super close attention, it almost looks like they are the same actor playing against each other. I but. While I was watching this, I was like, why didn't they have a more diverse cast? But then I was like, oh, it's history. It's like actually what happened. So they had to. Right. I know. But it's like, but like throw a hat on someone, like make someone a hat guy. Give give the guy a hat (laughs) for the love of God. Right. Like there's so many ways to give someone a personality like, oh, is that the guy who like randomly loves to wear women's brooches? Like just get there's give him something, give him a little something. But I mean, it it also also it's Colorado. Like <laughs> we have to buy like how not diverse this department probably totally. was. Yeah. So, um, you know, I can't stand this devil's advocate guy. It's like, but they're necessary people in society, right? You have to have that journalist who's going to like poke a hole in anything. Cause that's what a lawyer will do. That's what a good defense will do. Um, you know, uh, do you think that the drawing was psychobabble? Like, I don't, I don't think it's admissible in court, but I think like writing that off well, fair, it's like kind of also shows what time we were in this world with like what we considered to be I evidence that pointed to something bigger. Yeah. I think, I think the word psychobabble is a very nineties term as well. And very like, totally so dismissive. I think there's more to that drawing and like more, it is more re- revelatory of who he is. So yeah, the psycho psych, hearing psychobabble, I was like, Oh, that's such a, like a misogynistic dismissive shitty little term. I hate that. Right. Oh, no, I totally agree. But at at the same point, I'm like, I guess maybe they could just like they a defense lawyer could absolutely dismiss the idea of like that drawing meaning meaning anything. Um, A good one. Yeah, a good one. The the fact that John was flying in the picture (laughs) is fucking crazy. Like not even a plane, just flying. Love it. Um. 
So now they have the 911 call in the hands of the big boys. All right. And they're going to play the tape for Steve with enhanced audio. And they ask him to write down, like, basically whatever it is he hears. Um, and JonBenet in her voiceover says, is this the part of the story where the hero finally saves the princess? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, JonBenet, don't bury the lead about who fucking, you know what I mean? Like, we, we get it. Like, we absolutely think your brother killed you. So Steve is like listening to this and he's just electrified by it. Um, and he writes down everything he's heard. He just can't believe it. So he explains to the FBI agent, okay, first it's a woman and she's saying, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus. And then there's a more distant voice saying, please, what do I do? And then we hear what sounds like John's voice talking to the little boy. And then, you know, just like one more line where the boy like basically sort of is dismissed. Um, so watching it, this time, watching it this time around and watching Patsy, I was like, Oh, that is very deliberate and manipulative to say about the cancer and to say like, don't take my kid. I can't have more kids. That does look more deliberate to hear this time around. Well, cause also she did her, her Chloe Feynman face where she was really like, she, you know, wanted to make sure Linda heard that and was quite pleased with herself when she felt she effectively communicated it. Yeah. Um, and, and while Linda like never, you know, really shows a sign that she sees it for what it is, I wish that they had sort of like called that out more. She definitely. You know, I think she did see it for what it was. So um, John is watching out the window as Burke, you know, stands in the yard. I think he's playing with us. I think he's watching a squirrel. Um, <laughs> so two months later, um, the ca- this case has consumed Steve at this point. He's obviously bringing his work home with him. Um, he's up really late when his wife comes like pitter pattering out of the out of the bedroom. And she's like, it's 2 a.m. You need to sleep. And he's, you know, why are you reading about this before bed? And he basically tells her, like, listen, I don't think I can have kids anymore. Like, after all of this, he wouldn't be able to handle if anything like that ever happened to his kid. And, you know, she says, you got to figure something out because this is really ruining you. Um, And by the way, how could it not like this work for everything like, you know, you can say about people who work in law enforcement. I truly feel in a situation like this, like, God, how could you how could you deal with that? Like, I would never not. I would obsess over it. I couldn't not think about it for sure. It's so like even veterinarians. I'm like, how do you do your job? Like, and just like <sighs> not go home and cry every day. Oh um, my god, I know. But yeah, so at this point, um, we're going to the district attorney, um, interviewing the Ramses, and then we're going to go to the situation room again. You know, I have to say, I have to give this movie some credit. The pacing is fucking great it's in this great. movie. Because they do a really good job of sort of like, you know, they know that we know the details. I guess if you've never heard of this case for some reason, if you've been in a coma, maybe like this case will have enough of the details for you. But they are covering basically 20 years of an investigation. A lot of it, like uh, nothing is really happening. Like that's also the thing with this case is like when I was a kid, I always dreamed there was so much more going on that I just didn't know about. And come to find out, like, it really was like, there wasn't much they could do. 
Like there wasn't a lot of information to work with. They weren't getting any like crazy hot tips. We're not getting into that at all. All the other potential leads, we don't see any of that. It's very focused on just this sort of one theory that it happened inside the house. And when outside, you know, influencers come in like Lou, it nothing really comes of it. Right. Totally. I think there are still, for that reason, a lot of people who are convinced that the family couldn't have done it. Because they were so focused on investigating them? Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like they had a crazy hard on for the Ramses and just, you know, wanted to sort of wrap things up. And, you know, there are a lot of people that think, you know, what, whatever idea version of events that happened in that house that night, a lot of people still think there, you know, there was an intruder or if it wasn't Burke, it was Patsy and she snapped or something. I mean, yeah. I so like when it comes to true crime and when it comes to like figuring out what happened, I'm always of the belief of like Occam's razor of like the simplest answer is usually what fucking happened. You know what I mean? Like right. some some random person didn't I don't know. It it's usually like when somebody disappears, it's gotta be the husband. You know, like it's usually the most easiest apparent thing. That's what I think. Yeah, I agree. For the most part, I really agree. And for, you know, for many years, it never even occurred to me that Burke could do it. And once I saw it on the CBS special, I was like, oh, like, duh. Like, of course, like that all adds up to it being him. But there are elements like I think of, um, are you familiar with like the Delphi case Mm -mm. where it was like two girls who were having a sleepover? Um, and the next day they woke up early because they didn't have to go to school and they decided to go to this like sort of bridge. It's like an old railroad that is just like a wood suspended thing. It's almost like a local, um, historical site in some ways, but it's where a lot of kids go on days off just to, it's like a walking place for the community members, but also kids probably go there and smoke weed and shit all the time. They want to go get some new Instapics. So they went there, their sister dropped them off. And then, you know, next thing we know, they never, they never come home. They don't get picked up. No one can find them. The next day they are found dead in a small like river area um, where it wasn't completely completely covered by water, but it was like a a small river um, down the hill and no one knows who killed them, but because they were kids with cell phones, they were able to catch clips of this guy coming toward them on the bridge. And the police have a lot more information, hopefully, but like, Nothing makes sense in a case like that. Like, there's so many things. Like, maybe they were trying to meet a guy. Like, because one of them, the one who wiped her phone the night before, like, why would a kid wipe their whole phone unless they were doing something they didn't want to get caught doing? So you go to the place of like, well, maybe they were trying to meet a boy that they met online and it like turned out to be this like creepy guy. Some people think that, you know, it was just like an absolute toxic man and they probably like snickered at him or gave him a weird look because he did look sort of homeless um they you know and maybe he just was like he was pissed off that like this like you know these kids were making fun of him and he needed to like kill them to get revenge um there's also this weird thing in the video where it looks like his body is like stuffed with things it looks like he has 
like materials in his pants and in his pocket. You can't tell if he just has weight on him or if his jacket is stuffed with like tools basically to kill someone Mm. and to this day there's no answer about what happened it's been like two years it's a case that i am completely obsessed with and there is there's so many things that make perfect sense like of like oh that's absolutely what could have happened but there is no there is no logical conclusion like i i have no idea it drives me nuts and that's a little bit of what i feel like in this case like yes the most obvious thing is that someone in the house did it but I mean, I don't know. They're just so weird. It's just so they're yeah. such weirdo. Yeah. Um, for all the secrets they have, and for all we know, they could be having a, a sex party that nobody they don't want any of us to know about. You know what I mean? Well, that's always. I mean, that's a huge theory. I don't know if you like dove into that at all, but like I. I love a conspiracy theory and like there's a lot of people that think that John was a part of like a pedophile ring Stop. and and that they that he was, you know, basically trying to sell John Bonet into a pedophile ring. Stop. Yeah. Like that's a huge one is that like he's involved in some cabal shit or whatever, like really deep Pizzagate level shit um about wow. like the people he was involved with and the groups he was involved with and i don't know if you're familiar with the fact that like another girl locally i think was killed by a guy and then after patsy died john started dating the dead girl's mom what yeah so like that all really ties into it too where it's like oh my god well maybe it is much more insidious than we think True. like not that you could get much dirtier than someone covering up the murder of their child like maybe maybe it could be not a foreign faction just like a a pedophile faction yeah wow i've never heard that theory and that is bonkers and i can't wait to go on reddit and look more into it well yeah because like the pageant circuit i mean come on like unless you're a parent what the fuck are you doing there you what know are you like doing? attract large audiences and it's not as if they like check your sex offender record in order to get into a pageant. So who knows? But um, let's play 4850 to 5146. We left for dinner at the White's at approximately 4.30 p.m. The last thing she ate was cracked crab at the White's. She fell asleep in the car. I carried her up and put her in bed. No, I did not check the doors or the windows that night. I don't know if Patsy slept on the covers or under them. I did not write that note. Where where was Burke when you found the note and called 911? Asleep. can be solved, except sometimes you lose the pieces, or forget where you put them, or put the pieces from one puzzle in the box for a different puzzle. But if you find all the right pieces, you can solve the puzzle for sure. He didn't ask anything about the investigation, the autopsy, how his daughter was killed, nothing. His daughter was just murdered, and that's the second daughter he's lost. He's numb, traumatized. 
What's happening with the 911 call? We're reaching out to some private firms with some more cutting edge. Hey. We've got the marker that wrote the note. It's an exclusive match from the pot of pens not far from the pad in the kitchen. They staged it. It was an accident and they staged it to look like a blown kidnapping. Don't jump to any conclusions. I don't see a motive there. And if it was an accident, then how? And why? To avoid bad press? A kidnapping isn't any better. We're just looking at the evidence we have in front of us. And why such a horrific staging? Okay. What else are we pursuing? Are we tracking the pedophiles who may have attended her pageants? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot to process. Well, what's going on with the housekeeper? We're doing a handwriting analysis. Okay, well, don't get locked into only one theory. Keep pushing on all fronts. We need to talk to them, to the Ramses, separately and unprepared. Which isn't going to happen at this time. The DA's word's not mine, and according to the Ramses' new lawyers, they'll take written questions, but they want to review everything in our case file before they talk to the police. What? Get some questions written up. Damn it. Okay. Cracked crab. I think that is so funny. I don't know why. I know. She's so proud of it, too. Like, yeah, yeah, we had a crab dinner. Cracked crab. Okay. I mean, they are so... Like, they are just... they, They are so defensive and so insulted that anyone would dare yep. ask about the details of their daughter's murder. Yeah. And, you know, I hate to say it, guys, but even if you're not suspects, you're going to have to talk to the cops if you want your, like, the murderer of your daughter to be caught. Like, what's with, you know, Patsy going on TV and saying, you know, there's this, there's a guy out there, there's a terrible man out there that's, you know, killed my daughter. What's what's with that? And then not willing to work with the police. Yeah. If if your kid gets killed or if you're, God forbid, somebody close to you gets killed, you're going to be the number one suspect, probably. Right. And but I mean, all the more reason to, like, have full transparency, you yeah. know, and by the way. I, you know, I don't have a kid. If for some reason I acquire a daughter and she gets murdered and I have to cover for it for some reason, the first thing I'm going to do is start throwing out theories and names of people I can go distract the police with. Like, Patsy, like, you know, a guy who works at the movie theater, like, compliments your daughter's dress, like, fucking send them after him. Like, I would be, if I wanted to deflect, I would be sending them on a wild goose chase. Um, Especially... Especially now, because like, you know, that the internet is going to go down, dig up some of those theories and go down those rabbit holes and do the work for you. Of course. Oh, God, if I have to read about that fucking Santa guy (laughs) one more time, that poor man (laughs) working Christmas Eve, you know, and all of a sudden everyone's like, yeah, he's a pedophile murderer. I mean, that guy's name is still, you know, probably floating out there and attached to this case. Like. Talk about needing like reputationdefender.com. So um, we see some more home video of John Bonet. She's running around with a stuffed bear. We now learn it is day 128. I mean, as we know, if like the first 48 hours of a case aren't officially investigated, this is 120 days out. Like 
it's it's crazy that the Ramses were even legally allowed to go that long without being brought in crazy. to talk. It is so white privilege. Like it's so crazy. Oh my god, are you kidding me? Like if they were not white and incredibly wealthy, I mean probably even if they were incredibly wealthy and just not white, Burke would be in CPS. They, like for sure in the foster system. And they would both be in jail to this day. <laughs> like absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um so Linda comes in and says that the DA um she goes into the chief's office and she basically says that the DA suspended any testing at CBI. There's still unidentified male DNA in her underwear and you know the chief is like worried about the amount of heat they're taking for how all of this went down. And he decides he's going to take her off the case. And she's like, please don't like I'm building a relationship with Patsy. Like that can be really helpful. She's right. And he's like, sorry, but you're off. And so we see at this point, the media circus is even crazier. There's people you know, outside of the house all the time. And JonBenet says, mommy always said lots of people would see me. Um, oh my god again it's just so insulting like i feel like i've met six-year-olds who are far more advanced than they're portraying her and like you know like more precocious and like not so like it's a puzzle like it's like just call it what it is john benet like right 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 (laughs) you are done fucking dirty all right (laughs) we know she's not dumb let's stop making her to be this dumb kid yeah, and like super infantile. Like, come on. So Steve and Linda both look at the evidence um, the way that they do all day, every day. Um, you really like I, I started to feel heavy for them about how frustrating this must have been for them. And then Linda carries a box to her car. Um, Steve pulls up and sees her and she, he's like, what's going on? And she's like, I'm not staying on a desk job. Like, I'd just rather quit. And she asked Steve to promise her that he's going to see this through. And so this is like the promise he made and he carries this with him. This is like now he's that guy. He's promise guy. Yeah. Man of his word guy. So the detective who was there that day um, that when she went missing, the leather daddy, um, talks to Fleet and his wife about what happened after the funeral in Atlanta. And he's like, nothing. You know, we went back to we went back to my house and he says that you know, that he seemed like there was, there was some agitation there or something. And he, he basically said, you know, yeah, you know, I had a little disagreement with John's brother um, and asked him and his team to basically stay out of things. And then, um, you know, he said that Priscilla and him just basically plainly spoke their minds. Um, It wasn't, it was like a friend thing. So he wants to know if anyone corroborate with that. And he's like, yeah, or corroborate that. And he's like, you know, are you suggesting that we had anything to do with this? So now Fleet is like fucking done because he realizes, oh, this is starting to like turn on me again. I don't know if this was intentional by the police, but I think that this was a huge turning point for the case because now Fleet's like, fuck it. I'm done with these people. Right. So he goes to the captain and he demands a statement saying that they had nothing to do with this. And they're basically like, we can't talk about an open investigation and you know can you promise me john and patsy didn't say anything about this and the captain's like again i can't really comment on an ongoing investigation and so fleet demands that he makes a statement now we're on day 178 um 
the police are being absolutely roasted by the media for botching this, which is true. I mean, that was a, the huge part of the narrative was that the cops absolutely fucked this up. Um, and Steve says that when the DA forces them to show their entire hand, the, the tape, it's still going to stay with them. Um, and then they find out, OK, we're actually bringing in this independent expert named Lou Smith. He's a really big deal. I mean, Steve right away knows his name and he's like, he's a legend. He did the Heather Don Church case and like 149 others. Um, the DA is not going to start a jury yet, but they are bringing on Smith to help their case. Um, so this is a gigantic development for them. This must have been like such a, a fr- like breath of fresh air for him to know that he's not alone in this anymore. Um Fleet goes downstairs to talk to Priscilla early in the morning. He has his robe on and they both look just like completely exhausted. Like this has sucked the life out of them more than the Ramses. It seems like the physical toll that this has had on them. 100%. So Priscilla's reading the paper. I'm going to play this clip. Um, it is 5642 to 5744. Couldn't sleep. Think anyone actually read the police statement i'm not looking at the statement last summer months before this happened barb fernie pointed out that damaged door to patsy we thought someone had tried to break in she said it had been john traveling always forgetting his keys possible point of entry she knows she knows what that is People may not have liked the pageants or the sexy outfits or everything that Patsy was putting John Bonet into. But an innocent six-year-old girl is dead. We fed her her last meal. Who is going to start standing up for the truth around here? We are. So... We find out that the door has been broken this whole time. This was like, you know, I mean, we got to talk about this house. I mean, I am a single female homeowner. I can't recommend it. Like there's are so many days where I just would have I would do anything for another pair of hands around the house or at the very least, like just enough expendable like just like an insane amount of cash so i could throw money at any single problem right these people have enough money to fix a broken lock and fix a broken window right and why are they so why do they lack such security and i understand that this was a different time this was still a time where a lot of people left their back door open or they would leave the house without locking their door, especially if they lived in a small town or a community where things were generally safe. Like people were much more lax with safety back then. Yeah. And I also think it's too like a nothing's going to happen to up. Nothing's going to happen to us. Right. I mean, yeah. And that is like a totally that is complete privilege. Absolutely. I just find it so interesting And very telling, honestly, for people who were so obsessed with appearances to have such major things wrong with their house. Like it 
you know, it's very like, okay, things are fine on the outside. But once you get inside, you realize we have broken windows or fucking door lock doesn't work. Like my daughter pees the bed. It seems like her sheets were never changed after the last time. Yeah. Like crazy how things got really overgrown in that house. And I, I think sort of, I mean, I know it speaks to my mental health when my place is a shit show. Like I think it sort of speaks to the family's mental health a little bit. Um, Yeah. It's just, it's really, it's really bizarre to me that there was so many ways that someone could have easily gotten into this house. Um, But yeah, so Steve is eating at his desk and I'm playing a lot of clips, but a lot of them are short again, because the pacing in this movie was really great. Really good. Um, But also, you know, like outside of the sort of exposition, I think it is kind of funny to see how these how these characters are portrayed. And Lou is, you know, he's like the lone wolf. Like when Lou rolls up, he has a bolo tie on. He has glasses, like a little string on his glasses, a little holder. Lou has his own style. Like he is that person who's like coming into town to shake things up. Um and whether or not Lou was a big help, you know, we won't ever know. Like, unfortunately, we won't ever know. I remember hearing through a friend that there was one major loophole that was open and it it was involving a lawsuit. And I and part of me for not remembering which exactly which one it was, but I think also maybe that's good because this is somewhat like low-key information, but Basically, like, a, there is a loophole that be, that could come from all of this that's, like, not directly related to the case, but related enough where if they were able to get them on this one thing, John Ramsey would be have to be completely deposed about what happened in that house that night. Oh. Um, and, it, and so, like, you know, I hold out some faith and some hope that... Either this man will perjure the fuck out of himself or finally someday we will get to hear all of it. But I mean, how are they not deposed? Like, I mean, why? I know legally speaking, that's like, you know, not not common for someone who hasn't been arrested to be deposed. But it's like, I I don't know. I just think that they're. lack of desire to be helpful to the police in any way is like right come on guys like what do you, wouldn't you think the police they would be on their side to like find the murderer jeez like play along yeah play like if you're gonna try and pull this off pull off the impossible play along um so 57 56 to one minute and 15 seconds this is where we meet lou detective smith Lou. Steve. Thomas. It's an honor. Is that John Bonet? Yeah. I've told her that we're going to solve this. Let me show you something. These are all cases I've been privileged to help solve. We're going to get her in there, too. 
Yes, we are. Can I show you around? about ready to pull out. You done? I don't think I've ever seen a more compromised crime scene in my entire career. Yeah. There were mistakes made. These were your people. Contaminated doesn't even describe it. How do you account for that? They thought they were showing up to a kidnapping. Just a kidnapping. Basic police work. Fundamentals. No wonder the Ramses feel exposed. I would too. The music in this movie, by the way, if this was like a regular season... And we were rating this. I have to say, font off the chart. We're getting some standard typography. The music in this movie, though, is so extra. It's just on another level. Um, I love the line in this part where he's like, mistakes were made. It's like, yeah, that's the understatement of the century. It's crazy. Well, but also at the same time, I'm like, come on, Lou. Like, you're not telling Steve anything he doesn't know already. Like, if Steve could turn back time and make things different, I'm sure he would. I know he would. Same thing with Linda. Like, uh, it was like Linda was watching a car crash after a car crash in that house that day of just evidence being completely destroyed. And I'm kind of like, Lou, they know. They know that they bungled this. Go easy on the guys. But it also, towards the end of that, where he was like, no wonder they feel exposed. Like, it does seem like some there's some sort of motivation there to come to the aid of the family, which is, like, why he has so many, you know, his theories are very distracting from the narrative that the cops have had, right. which is probably a good thing. You need to disrupt things sometimes in order to get progress made. But it also feels like he really complicated things. I mean, this is a real never meet your heroes moment for Steve. (laughs) Right. Definitely. He definitely complicated shit. Yeah. So JonBenet says, I made a drawing once at school. The teacher thought it was a horse. My friend thought it was a fish. It was a picture of me. I wish someone saw that. I saw that. (laughs) I mean... Wow. That's just, you know, first of all, that's deep, Jamine. But deep. secondly, sounds like you weren't really much of an artist. Um, <laughs> like, that's sort of an advanced thought to give her cons- based off of everything else. That, right. like, she was this hybrid of a horse and a fish. Um, but, yeah, so Steve tells Lou that the Ramses are moving to Atlanta. And he has to hand over the whole case file. And Lou says that he doesn't think the Ramses had anything to do with it. And so after all this time, this is when he like has come up with the intruder theory and he presents it. He thinks it was someone who was spotted at the Christmas, who spotted her at the Christmas parade or one of her pageants. That makes sense. He broke into the house when they were out and he got familiar with the layout. And then he sat down and he wrote the ransom note. 
He waited until around 12 when he crept upstairs and immobilized her with a taser. A taser isn't loud when it's applied directly to the skin. He then brought her down to the basement and tried to have his way with her, which is why he taped her mouth and bound her arms. And then when she woke up, she screamed and ripped the tape off. Um, which I, I mean, I, he never said like when she would have reapplied the tape, but I guess the implication is that it seemed like tape had been ripped off more than once mm-hmm. on her mouth area. Um, and then when she woke up, she screamed and he struck her with a flashlight. He panicked, hit her in the basement and forgot his ransom note downstairs. And Steve just like, you know, we can't believe that he came to this conclusion and just 72 hours, like mm-hmm. usually murders, you know, aren't he said like Lou says that basically like murderers murders aren't always what they seem things go wrong all the time um and i mean let's entertain this for a moment i but i i wonder yeah. if the ramsey's paid off lou that's a great thought that's a great thought cuz i mean it's it's um it's hard to believe that he would come in and with, I mean, unless, unless that's his, his, the main purpose of his job is just to sort of upset the track that it seems like police are going down potentially at a laziness. Like maybe it's his out of the box thinking that makes him so good at what he does. But in this particular case, it seems like he's so, He's so convinced that the Ramseys couldn't have possibly done it that you do feel like, yeah, like maybe he was being paid off. Right? Like, I don't know. Like, he doesn't even examine the additional evidence for the Ramseys doing it. I think also the thing with Lou is like he carries the pictures of his victims in his pocket. Like, it's very clear that he has a deep emotional attachment to these kids. And Maybe there's a part of him that can't face the reality that a parent would do something like this to their child. Right. True. Oh, that's so that's so dark. Yeah, I know. Oh, God. So Steve and his partner basically feels like this goes against all the evidence that they have. And to them, it's completely clear that this was a situation that went wrong in the house and was covered up and staged to look like something else. And then Steve says that, you know, Steve tells him, listen, I was a fan of the case you did with Heather Don Church. Like that case was amazing. Her family was accused and they didn't do it. And, you know, it was an outsider. But that's not going to be every case. That's not the blueprint. And Lou says that, no, the blueprint is evidence determining theory, not theory determining evidence. Oh. Okay, Lou. Sassy. Um, so, and that's the other thing with Lou, too, is like, I feel like you can't tell Lou no. Mm-mm. Oh, no. Lou, who's the boss? Lou's the boss. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Lou is totally the boss. Yeah. So. He tells Steve that this is his, um, that, you know, this is your first homicide, Steve. You're acting like you know everything. And his partner, you know, tells Lou that he's wrong, that no one in the department will agree with him, and that the FBI won't either. So he excuses himself. And at this point, I kind of thought he was off the case, but I should have known Lou better by now. Mm -hmm. Like, nothing's going to stop Lou. So he, um, we see Alex Hunter, the Boulder district attorney. He goes on TV to talk about this. And then we hear a clip of John and Patty at home. Then after that, we're going to see Steve talking to fleet and Priscilla. And then finally a scene of fleet and Priscilla talking to the governor. So this scene right here is one Oh three 38 or these scenes rather one Oh three 38 to one Oh six 15. 
You won't find too many people in this department agreeing with you, Lou. Or the FBI or any other agency who's taken a look at this. It's not the first time. Gentlemen. I want to say something to the person or persons that committed this crime. I mentioned the list of suspects narrows. Soon there will be no one on the list but you. This is nice. A university professor saw me on television and says he would stake his reputation that I'm innocent. John? I feel like... The people that are supposed to be protecting John Benet aren't. That includes the DA. It's insane to suggest that we need legal counsel to deal with our own district attorney, but that's just it. We don't trust him anymore. Neither do we. He's been accused in a national magazine of being incompetent. It's been almost a year and he's done nothing for John Benet. The lawyers that I've been speaking with in Denver have made a suggestion that could just help us get a fair hearing with the grand jury. But I can't do it by myself. How can we help? We want you to appoint a special prosecutor to take the case completely away from Hunter. And politics and ego, Governor. Everyone seems to have forgotten that this is about a murdered six-year-old girl. Yes, I think they have. Let me consider it. Thank you, Governor. He's not going to do a thing. So then what? You take it to his boss, the people who elected him. Mm. Music. Um, okay. So, I mean, yeah, just in case you were wondering if these people were rich and powerful, I mean, they're sitting with the governor, like it's no thing. Um, I mean, you know, the governor is dying to make this go away too, though. Like, I feel like the whole state was just up in arms about this. And then it's a bad Columbine, baby. It was a tough, it was a tough decade for Colorado. I gotta say. Um, Sure was. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I love that they turned on their best friends. I really do. I I don't know if what I would I don't know how I would handle this if like I I discovered that my best friends were possibly capable of this. Right. I don't know how I would either, but then I'm thinking about it and like they're talking about justice for John Benet, but like is John Benet wanting looking down from heaven wanting to see her parents go to jail? You know what I mean? It's all about it's about us. It's about us wanting to know what happened. It's not about John Bonet. You know? Maybe we just found out they're atheists and they don't think that John Bonet is on the other side. They just wow. want to find a murderer. You know, 
there we go. The white family atheists. But yeah, I mean, like, uh, I found all of this like just kind of incredible. Honestly, I live in a big space of denial most of the time. I don't think I would be able to be honest with myself if I thought my friend was this close to getting away with it. I think it depends on how, who the friends were. Like if it were my best, best, best friend. Oh my God. I don't know. It would take me a minute. Right. You, cause you don't, I mean, like there is something wrong with Patsy. Like she, you know, sure. The peak of her day is that someone wrote to her and said like, Oh, you know, I would defend you. But can we talk about the fact that they do another weird close up on John who they also did a close up of his bad tongue. For some reason, they like focus in on his eyes and his pupils are fucking saucers. And I, and like, it's such a close shot that you can see the actor's contacts. But like, again, why, why now? Like, why are his eyes, are, are we supposed to think that John's on Molly? Like, is that right. the implication? <laughs> it's gotta be that he's, he's, the director's implying that John's on drugs or something. Or, like, it's just a lazy-ass moment. I mean, I would bank more on the second. Because um, <laughs> I, I would be shocked if John, as a response to this, developed an Adderall addiction or something. But anyway, um, so it's now day 371. The newspaper prints an open letter from the White family. Um, it's a full page. I, I don't know if it just deserved that type of real estate or if they bought an ad or something. But like you can tell this is a big day for the whole town. They basically say that this was the fault of John and Patsy for not fully cooperating. Ooh. True and fair. Basically, John and Patsy read this and Patsy's like, well, what kind of people would turn on their friends like this? And John's like, yeah, that's what the public's going to think, too. Like, what? Who? how are these people credible if they're going to sell out their own friends? What? Oh, my God. Like, he's more concerned about like, he's just so not bothered. He thinks he's completely immune to it. Right. I mean, he lives, he's one of those people that lives in like an altered state of reality. These people fascinate me where like they see something that means like one thing. It's right there in black and white. Like it means exactly what it says. And you've already written off this whole thing because you're like, well, who would possibly believe people who would betray their friends? I'm like, John, no one else is reading this with your eyes. Right. Like, no one thinks that way. Um, but yeah, so the cop says that the noise, um, on the 911 call said there's a cop basically that it had gotten out. The DA basically released the tape. It was like just a move. Um, and so there's this cop outside who I don't think we've ever seen before. Who's like smoking a cigarette and he's like getting up in Steve's face and he's like, it said, I scream at you. And, and Steve's like, no, I, I heard something else. I swear it was like, you know, what did I do wrong? And so he goes, what you hear is subjective. A Japanese person would hear domo arigato. A Frenchman would hear parlez-vous wow. français. <laughs> I fucking, for some wow. reason, I love that this cop is such a prick. Like, <laughs> nothing makes me laugh harder than like a fucking... <laughs> just demented individual Ooh, like that what a and course, it's like you know obviously this hits much more heavy that is you know he's a fucking racist cop like you know just flippantly making declarations but um you know it's 
it's just it's such a character it's such a type of person oh my god yeah it's such a cop character 90s cop character yeah. yeah. Oh, parlez-vous français? <laughs> like, like, yeah, that's what French people hear. Absolutely. Yeah. That's how they hear it. So Lou is back to share some more thoughts with Steve. Um, and then after that, we're going to hear the first interview with the police that they were able to get with the Ramses. This is in late August of 1999. Wow. So, like, I mean, that, that is... Wow. Yeah. The first interview was like two full years later, two, two years and like six months later. They like, should have been had their trial by then and like convicted. Who else can make something last this long except for the ridiculously rich? It's like the yep. whole like Lori Laughlin and like Massimo Giannulli thing where yes. it's just like you guys spent millions of dollars to prolong this long enough. And by the grace of God for you a pandemic happens and then all of a sudden you're like, well, I can make a plea. Like I'll cooperate. Now you get no sentence. You get dinged. Like you you pay less. Their fines are less than what they paid USC. I think it's like $150,000 discrepancy. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Good for them. You know, (laughs) Um, okay, so another clip. Sorry, this end part is a little clip heavy, but I want to make sure you guys hear all this. 107.50 to 111.39. Should have given me the tape, Steve. An entomologist. Mm-hmm. About these webs. Uh, Lou, an intruder would have destroyed them and wiped all the dust off the windowsill. Uh, not so fast. Oh, oh, sorry, are you saying the spider uh, spun them back for a photo op? That's why we need to talk to an entomologist. Oh, for God's sake, Lou. Uh, is there an outside chance of that? Um, I guess. There is. Is there an outside chance that the person killed her in the basement and then ran the flashlight upstairs to the kitchen? There is. But forgot the ransom note on the stairs? There is. No, <laughs> there isn't. Because an outside chance of this and an outside chance of that and a hundred other this and that add up to an outside chance of the whole thing. And there you go again, detective. You're letting the cart lead the horse. You know what I want to see, Lou? Yeah, you want to see John Ramsey hanging by his neck. No. Where was the John Ramsey that lost his first daughter in a car accident? He was inconsolable, devastated, bedridden for weeks over a car accident. Where was that John Ramsey? I can't say. I've never lost two daughters before. Let me ask you this. Where does the garrote fit into your cart? Look, why, why bother with something so sadistic, so cruel? And... What about the unknown male DNA in her underwear? That is a wild Steve. Chase. Steve. I've seen this before, Steve. You're out to prove something. It's got nothing to do with this case. If you guys are finished in here, Hunter just got a letter from Ramsey saying a grand jury won't be necessary for them to talk. What a surprise. Go in front of a grand jury or do an interview? Tough choice. Jean Benet fell asleep in the car. She walked in slowly, went up the spiral stairs to bed with my mom behind her. She was sound asleep, carried her in, I put her in her bed. Say that the intruder was someone Jean Benet knew, and they fed her the pineapple. Priscilla has a jacket, just like that one I was wearing. She's the type that might have a stun gun. 
My parents thought I was asleep, but I wasn't. I was just pretending. You're a Christian? Will you swear to God you didn't do this? I swear to God. Did your mother and father prepare you for this conversation? What if I told you we had trace evidence that appears to lead you to the death of your daughter? I did not kill my child. I didn't have a thing to do with it. Anyone else? Your wife? Swear to God? I don't give a flying flip about scientific evidence. I swear to God. What if it was an accident? Something illegally? You're going down the wrong path, buddy. What about Burke? Burke Ramsey did not do this, okay? He did not do it. Get off it. You got anything you'd like to ask me? Is that a Rolex? Are you aware there had been prior vaginal intrusion on John Benet? What? No, I am not. Prior to the night she was killed? I... I am... I want to know what you're talking about. I am. I am shocked. Wow. Okay. There's a lot there. Um, first of all, I want to say that I've always, for since I was my 25th birthday, I've incorporated John Bonet into my birthday in some way, whether she's on my invitation. Wow. Or something. And a few years ago, I had a cotton candy company make me a pineapples and cream oh. cotton candy that was called the burke ramsey wow i love yeah. that for you it was at like a bar in new york and it was really funny because like girls started to walk up to me and were like do you know like do you listen to my favorite murder are you a murderino <laughs> and i was I was like, yes, I am. But also, like, <laughs> I am uh, a huge stan of this case. Um, and Georgia and Karen, like, we're dying about my birthday invitation on the show one day, which is how I have most of the listenership for my podcast. That's so, amazing. But yeah, I mean, it is she's a piece of iconography in a way like that. I kind of just she is, I, you know, like I kind of can't get over the image of her and like I've just always been so alert um but it was just very alluring so like okay let's talk about the vaginal trauma what which yeah no fun to talk about but we got to get into it okay okay I never right. I never want to discuss my vaginal trauma but okay honestly especially that of a young girl mm-hmm. but we have to okay so idea that came to me when I was watching this. Do you think Lou was possibly part of the pedophile ring? Oh, wow. I think Lou is definitely, like, mobbed up, like, on their side somehow when I was watching this. How can it not feel that way, right? I mean, this they're trying to really paint Steve as the hero in this, and I believe that the first movie they made was based off of Steve's book. So, Lifetime has a Steve bias, Mm. and, like, they obviously are trying to paint Lou as someone who, with the best intentions, came in and and spent a lot of time deflecting from what was obvious. Right. I mean, at the maybe, time, maybe he's in the pedophile ring. Uh, he possibly is in the pedophile ring. At the same time, you know, as much as Lou and that other detective who plays devil's advocate fucking suck, like, 
they are necessary for the telling of this story to show basically how the law works and how you can't just arrest someone because this is the only logical thing that makes sense. Like yeah. anytime they start to really dig their heels in and like, you know, feel like they've they've got this, those characters need to be there to disrupt. Um, I do feel bad because Lou worked on this till the day he died. Um, and he died, I think in like 2010. So, I mean, he spent many, many years of his life completely consumed with this case mm. and it never really sat well with him. So in some ways I'm kind of like, Oh, it's a little fucking rude to his memory. But if, if it was what we just watched, I'm like, calm down. Like you're going a little, you're going a little bit too hard. Um, okay. So as for the <laughs> vaginal, uh, situation, do you think that she was being molested over a long time? Do you think that maybe there was an accident? Like, I think it could, like, there are accidents that could explain vaginal trauma, but not prolonged vaginal trauma. Did it say prolonged? For sure. Because that's what he said to, um, that's what the detective said to Patsy. And she was very, like, you know, kind of incredulous about it, where she was like, oh, my, like, prior to that night, um, I don't think that she knew if something was going on. I don't think that she knew if I'm being perfectly honest with you. Although I think that's something that a lot of parents willingly unknow if they can. Yeah. But I also think again, for me, I think it's Burke. I think that if he's wiping feces on his little sister, then there's no telling what else he's doing to her as well. So I think I kind of agree with I hate to say it, but I do think that Burke was probably I mean, he's nine. Like, it's not as much as we don't like to think that like a nine year old would have any sort of like sexual but they do or behavior. They like, let's face it, a nine year old boy absolutely does. Like so I wouldn't be like completely shocked, especially because it seems like these kids were kind of raised on the, they kind of raised themselves in some ways. Like Burke was very sort of independent within the house from everything we've seen. Like the fact that he's up at night making pineapples and milk by himself, like he knows his way around yeah. life a little bit. And I wouldn't be surprised if he had some sort of knowledge or exposure to like sexual materials. Totally. And it's just another way that he sort of took out his anger on his sister. You know that kid is like a little hacker on the internet in 1996 finding porn. Like totally. Totally. Boobs.com, dude. It's right there for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, um, okay. So in terms of uh, her defending Burke, when Patsy was like, Burke Ramsey did not do this. I can't help but think of like the classic sort of people reading technique of people when they don't use contractions are much more likely to be lying. Really? Like when they take something back and they say Burke didn't, like instead of saying he did not, like that is contractions are normal. There's yeah. something that like you would normally em like employ just like whatever. When you like go and say do like he did not and you're like being very, exp like very, yeah. the two words, the formality, wanting to make sure someone really hears you, which is what I got from her in that scene. Like she seemed so over this. She couldn't believe that she had to be answering these questions all these years later. Yeah. Um, for some reason, Burke like copped to being awake the whole time, pretending to sleep. Yeah. That's weird. Which I'm, I'm like, let's explore that more. Right. Exactly. Because 
there's no way someone was silently doing this. Right. I didn't know that thing about the contractions, but that makes so much sense. It's like thou doth protest too much. Like if you're really emphatically saying it, then that's you're protesting too much. People do it all the time. Like once you once you learn that, you sort of can't unhear it when you're trying to figure <laughs> out if someone's lying to you or not. And obviously, that's like anything else. Like when people say, oh, you look to the left when you're lying, like all that's kind of bullshit at the end of the day. But it was um, noticeable to me. And I think that was a direct like those parts were directly like transcribed from the real tapes. Um the pineapple, like I wish we, because that did turn out to be the smoking gun. Yeah, they don't and, mention and the, it too much here. No, I think this movie was sort of made in response to the CBS documentary, mm-hmm. um, and like all the, the sixty minutes and all the different Dateline stuff that was going on at this time. This was made around the same time, um, and so I'm all, all that was out there, and I don't know why they didn't. Um, include that because i feel like that was like that's the thing you know the pineapple right so it's they they found pineapple in her stomach and the theory is that she that that was burke's favorite um snack and she tried to steal it from him and he flipped out and killed her yeah and so like it almost makes sense like he's territorial about food which is would probably explain why he flipped the fuck out on the therapist who took the soda yeah he's like one of those people who's like don't touch my stuff um which a lot of kids are that kid um and they don't kill people but yeah it was it was something that i definitely that definitely I, i that felt similar so the pineapple milk thing i gotta say like what a weird weird (laughs) what a weird favorite dessert for a kid to have that's so gross that sounds so gross to me it's very crab legs it's like from (laughs) it's 1950s dining yeah it's very like waldorf salad yeah are you familiar with um damon's and glendale no is it good it's like well i like it because it's like sort of my local kind of like yeah it's good it's steaks and stuff like that and it's like a tiki themed restaurant but it's a really old la restaurant and one of the ways that they sort of keep that feeling authentic is they have the original menu Uh as they had in the like 30s or whatever and it's all shit like pineapple and milk and that is like it's kind of interesting how like old school they might they were in some of those ways like where their kid would know about that and casually make it for himself like this family is sort of throwbacky in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if it's like, cause the mom was Southern or what, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. Steve finishes watching the interviews and he knows at this point that nothing is going to come out of this. He basically has given up and he feels like everyone is just laughing at them. Um, there's a, another detective there, his partner, who asked Steve what he wants to do about it. And he says he's going to walk. Like, what's he going to do after all this? Catch a bad guy and then maybe they'll prosecute him. He's basically lost all faith in this process and feels like if he walks away, that might be the closest he gets to making a statement about how he feels about this case yeah. and how, you know, how he's being helped. Um, and Jamini goes... Wait, the detective isn't supposed to quit. He's supposed to solve the puzzle. Why is he doing this? Isn't this isn't how the story's supposed to go? 
So Steve then puts on another tape, his favorite tape of John Bonet with the hose. Oh <laughs> he watches God. it. It's her in the yard. Um, you know, that's the part of it that doesn't sit well with me for some reason. I don't think he's like a creeper. I just think that's kind of like a weird way to show his connection to her. Maybe Steve's in the pedophile ring. I know. Like, honestly, how fucking deep does this go, dude? Seriously. Um, so the governor reads a statement that Steve is retiring from the newspaper. And he's like, oh, it's actually pretty well written. Um, he tells his assistant that maybe the whites were right and they should hire a special prosecutor. Steve meets with the whites and they are bringing in Mike Kane, who's like a big shot from out of town. Um, they think that he's going to be the guy. Um, Lou hands a letter to the chief outside of the court when they're about to do this jury thing. And he says, I will not be part of the persecution or persecution of innocence. So All he's right. very sold on them being innocent. Um, he has a real raging hard on for them being innocent. Dominate mm-hmm. tells us that Lou told the jury an intruder killed her and kept trying to prove it until he died in, tw- in um, 2010. The grand jury is in session, we see. So then 13 months later, the AD makes a statement saying that the grand jury has done a great job with all of this and that he and the prosecution task force believe that they don't have enough evidence to bring charges against anyone that uh, they've investigated so far. Um, And so I think what happened from this, if I'm if I'm following it correctly, is that the jury did make some decisions, but ultimately they felt like they didn't have the evidence to go through with that. But like they did like a soft survey of of this jury. Didn't they recommend that they be indicted and then they just were never indicted? I I mean, the I think the AD was the one who said like the AD is like, it all checks out here for me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think that was in the 60 minutes thing is that they were supposed to be indicted and then they just never were. YOLO. I mean, I guess like three months after this isn't like the title cards at the end, but three months after that grand jury met together, the case um, expired in terms of statute of limitations, which there should not be statutes of limitations on the murder of a child that was like sexually assaulted. I mean, that's just fucking insane to me. Like the fact that like there's a statute of limitations on like, you know, a child being molested and like, you know, they might have that realization years later where the person who hurt them is still working you know with kids or whatever it's just it's those things should just that's so shitty out of all the laws we have in this country i feel like that should be one that is um adjusted so the whites watch um all this unfold on tv and they are infuriated they're walking away with no answers and steve watches with his wife and she tells him that he did everything he could and he says no i didn't i gave up and he walks out of his office and he walks into his office and looks at his picture of Jean Benet and he says, you know, I made a promise and now I need to tell the truth. So he writes a book about being inside the investigation and right away he sued for a variety of things, specifically one of them being that he used inside police information, stuff that really, I mean, honestly, I'm kind of stunned that he thought he could get away with that. Right. But good for him i guess like even the publisher like um, why would you take that on a lot of people feel like this was a publicity grab for him and that he was really just trying to profit off of her name 
um, the Ramseys write their own account of what happened that paints pretty much a completely opposite picture. Um, we're seeing like basically all the media this shows up in that people are building websites that contain all the evidence and, um, you know, the public is very invested in this. Um, so then in 2006, um, the phone rings at the Ramsey house and Patsy picks up. It's her doctor informing her that she needs to come in. This is when, you know, leading up to her finding out she has cancer. So then Steve and Linda catch up with some drinks on a back porch. Um, this may, there's something in here that made me think of you specifically. Um, and then we go to the Atlanta palliative center right after that. So 120 to 122 30. I had to take a job trimming trees. My boss is a kid named Carlos. He's 19. It's hard. I read your book. My legal bill? Yeah? Bad? <sighs> it's all gone. Everything. Sorry. I still think about her sometimes. Not a day goes by that I don't think about her. Yeah. That was a lie. I think about her all the time. I hear Patsy's cancer is back. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Well, I gotta get to work. What are you doing now? I started a small carpentry business. That fits. That's good. Yeah. Good to see you, Steve. You too. You once asked me to find Jean Benet's killer. Hmm. I did. And I told you that I would. You did. Patsy. There was just you, John, and Burke in that house. Is there something you want to tell me now? Wow. Okay. What a good scene. Yeah, it's great. Um, I love that if... If this is true, that Linda had the balls to find to show up to Patsy's it's deathbed. Bad. I mean, iconic. Okay. But <laughs> the part that made me think of you. Tell me. <laughs> In the beginning, when Linda says she had to take a job cutting down trees and she has a 19 year old boss named Carlos, <laughs> I um, was thinking that is such a Natalie Beach move. <laughs> <laughs> Like you could like uh, the same feeling that I had in the Carol, like I was Caroline Calloway yeah. essay where 
I'm like, you know, Natalie, you could have worked inside of the Whole Foods. Like, I seriously <laughs> doubt that, like, you were so homely that you couldn't get a job at the Gap. Like, you had why to take, is Linda? You had to take the toughest job possible. Right. She's like working in a steel mill and like ghostwriting <laughs> like Calloway's book, which just like I would I couldn't I could never write that essay. Like obviously Caroline sucks too, but like oh that my. essay really like got under my skin. And when I when just hearing Linda say that she took on this absolutely unnecessary labor for her to take on, like she's not any more qualified to do that than she is to like fold t-shirts at Sears right 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 I just was like what a Natalie Beach move to like go get the job that is the most physically intensive and like personally for some reason degrading thing to you and also my secret theory is that Natalie could have worked inside of the Whole Foods she liked watering the lettuce and she can own it own it Natalie but the lettuce wasn't that bad for you this is so funny because on my podcast we say all the time that all roads lead back to Caroline Calloway and they do Oh, trust me. I mean, I was looking for an excuse to bring this they up. Do. I have to know because we are so close to wrapping this up. And this is just like a clear in to talk about what it is you do on your podcast. Yes. I need to know about all this. I need to know all the tea. Like, I need to know your thoughts on Caroline. I need to know what you think is like the most interesting scam you've covered because your podcast is all about basically breaking down scams yes oh my god so with caroline we sent someone undercover to her um artist retreat to go as a guest and then report on it and um she said it was hilarious caroline was an hour late and like gave them a gift bag with a stick um and a candle and a votive candle in it and it's just crazy I go back and forth on Caroline. Sometimes I feel bad for her. And then I'm on this subreddit called um, Small Bean Snark. And that subreddit is like, no, she's manipulating you. She's manipulating like she wants you to feel bad for her, like with her dad's death and all this stuff. So I go back and forth between thinking she's not scammer. And then but this latest round of her like monetizing and doing an OnlyFans and like shitting on sex workers but then trying to be like a, a like a high class sex worker has made me like dislike her truly to the core we asked her to come on when we did our episode on her um she shared it and said that we were bullying her which we weren't we were like very objective but clearly she didn't listen to it um we emailed her manager to come on and she respectfully declined um, but she is the one that keeps on giving. She's fascinating. Um, I got really into the dark web for one episode, which I like too. Like there's so much shit on there. You can, yeah, you can buy like credit card numbers and like do real scamming. Um, it's cr- to say the least, like the dark web is, is truly, I mean, that's on another level. What happens on there? It's nuts. Like you can watch human sacrifices on there. Oh my God. It's crazy. Have you heard of red rooms? I've is that like where a murder is happening? Basically, it's like a live streamed room where like a human being is like getting tortured and it's like a Vegas betting event, like really Ooh. wealthy people get together and like watch this person get tortured and you can pay extra money to have a certain type of torture done to them and Ooh. it's like I mean it's it's what you think people who are have so much money and so much access like when they get bored it's exactly what you would think they would do to cure that boredom wow. like it's just like 
experience you should not be able to buy. And they have figured out a way to do it. And it's really sick shit. Like it's, it's really sick shit. And I think there's more of it going on than people could possibly consider. Um, Cause like normal people just don't think like that. I have to look that up. That sounds crazy. Um, also, I'm obsessed with Epstein um, and the Epstein case because that is just like there's so much to unravel there and so many people who are tied up in it and so many people lying about shit. Obsessed. It's great. I um, I'm obsessed with that, too. And I don't know if you've seen on Google. I'm sure you have like the um, drone footage of his island. Yes. And like it, you, I mean, you know, looking at it, everything has to be going on underground. Like what is under that thing is the question. Like, it's just, it's, I go to all sorts of places about what could possibly be down there. I saw some account with some neighbor or like, or maybe it was like a drone through the window or something that saw dental chairs. Like, I don't know what kind of shit he has. And I think that new Netflix documentary, like barely scratched the surface. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. It's like four episodes. It's probably the shit that you already know. Yeah. I mean, okay, listen, I don't want to be too repetitive because I did talk about a little bit about Caroline um, with a previous guest who's obsessed about with this too. But I feel like you are um, like the resource. So I really yes. want to talk to you a little bit more about it. Um, I have to say I am a codependent person to a fault. I am like disgustingly overly empathetic mm. like i can find a reason to make an excuse for anyone mm. i'm on the team of people that kind of didn't think that her quote-unquote artist retreat was a scam as much as it was just like a mismarketed meet and greet yeah and like there are people all the time who charge like two three hundred four hundred dollars not even just like the big celebrities of the world, but like, you know, influencers and stuff that charge, you know, 250 bucks to come meet them at an event. Totally. And I'm kind of like, you know, I've spent 160 bucks on some of the dumbest shit that, that has, Sephora. you know, I, yeah, no, like, or, but like that stuff you'll use, like I've thrown $160 away without a second thought yeah. in my life. And I'm kind of like, well, if that's where you decided to put your money, that's kind of what you get. Like, what do you expect? Like, it, I never really found that to be a scam, although I am really interested in what's going on with her book scammer and the fact that she, you know, incentivized people to buy multiple copies because they would get, you know, autographs. I mean, she really sold that. And then this thing, when publishers are, in fact, up and working, she still hasn't sent this book out. And she said she she like didn't release the last part of it or something right well that like that's not even the book that's oh. like another article that she's just writing behind a paywall and she donated a bunch of that money to like covid relief but like that wasn't supposed to be in lieu of the book that was supposed to be like an additional right, thing that right. she could monetize i wouldn't be shocked if when she saw covid happen that she thought oh okay i can lie about the publishers being shut down yeah and release this and then write something else like more campy because like what she looked like she was selling was essentially a children's book based off the cover and everything yeah. it seemed like a, it was going to be a quick read so the thing that really soured me on her like i was being objective and even like i like when we went to this artist retreat when our correspondent Mackenzie went i was open-minded and i was like i don't think that's a scam i was but a couple of weeks ago, um, I don't know if you saw this, but people found her Airbnb profile 
And oh my god. Yes. And like, I have to say, I'm an avid Airbnb user myself. (laughs) And like, you can just feel that sort of unspoken Airbnb energy in the posts where you try to not bury a person. And so like people were like four stars, like the day I got there, I had to do three hours of laundry and the place was a mess. But overall, it's a great location. Yeah. (laughs) And then the one review that was left for her was like the people came back and there was a teapot full of piss. She pissed in the teapot. Like that's the thing that made me turn on her up until then I was objective, but then I was like, why are you pissing in a stranger's teapot? Come on. Okay. So this is my theory on that. I think that she got some strange wherever she was staying and that, cause that's a guy move, right? A girl isn't going to piss in a teapot. Like the logistics of it are just a nightmare. So, I don't think a, a woman would confidently piss in a teapot, but I think guys, like, wow. I mean, there are just those guys out there that, like, piss in a water bottle and then, like, they accidentally leave it in their car for a week. Like, it feels like a very dude thing and, like, something that she wouldn't think to check before she left. Wow, wow, wow. Now, I didn't even think of that. That is a great theory. Maybe I'm back like, in Caroline. I just think she fucks gross people, but then also... Like, you know, obviously, Caroline is just so many of the things she's done are questionable. Like, you can't even say like, oh, the anti-Semitic stuff aside. There is no putting that aside. Um, I don't but I I don't think that was an intentional, though. I don't know. That's what my guest said to me last week. And she's Jewish and like cares very much about this stuff. She said, honestly, I think Caroline drinks a lot on an empty stomach. Mm. And people, you know, I said, I feel like people probably try to set her up a lot. Mm. Like people probably DM her things, like hoping that she'll be lazy enough to post it or like not see through it. And you know, but if you look at the comment that was attached to it, it was very like, oh, greedy Hollywood Jews, like love money. Like that was sort of the undertone of the whole tweet. And once I saw, I was just like, oh, I can't like the two of those together. Ooh. That is not, that's not hitting right for me. But I will say with Small Bean Snark, because I've checked it out a lot. Of course. Like I'll go back on there once in a while and check it out. I've never really commented or anything. It seems like that's a community of people that are never going to give her credit or benefit of the doubt on anything. Like they have, they are so committed to just everything she does is wrong. Like sometimes the non things that they'll make issues of on there. I'm like, now you're telling on yourself. Mm. Now, now it like you took this completely innocuous thing and like turned it into like, oh, she thinks, you know, it's just like they're all in the bitch eating crackers stage with her, but like on another level. Um, but the OnlyFans, again, I talked about this part with my friend too. This is what concerns me for her mental health because I don't think she thought that through. Yeah. And I have a lot of friends who are sex workers and and take like private snaps and stuff like that. I like cannot express how much I do not have a problem with that life. But everyone I know who's involved with it has thought very long and hard about how they're going to do it, how they either protect Mm -hmm. themselves if they don't want to be found or whatever. Like this is it's not something to take casually. And when I (laughs) I'm like the number one reply on that tweet to her because I tweeted at her like, Caroline, you look great, but take this down (laughs) because I, 
you know, when someone posts a shot of their titties at what, like 11 p.m. Florida time on Twitter because they didn't write part of an essay, that doesn't seem particularly thought out. Like she launched into something that will affect her for the rest of her life. I think. And I, yeah, I think she does act very impulsively and she doesn't think things through. That said, I do think she's a hustler and she's a good businesswoman. And like, you have to give her credit for that. Oh, any day of the week, I will say, like, that's why I didn't have a problem with the Dreamer BBs. I'm like, let her sell them. Mm-hmm. Like, it will it will run out eventually, but it's something tangible she's creating. If people want to pay for that, let them pay for it. Like, don't... My thing is, like, don't ever count anyone else's money. If people are willing to throw money at that, that's their life. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't get... And, and you know what? Some people... This is a demented world, okay? Some people might just want a piece of paper that Caroline Calloway touched. It's like just it's it's part of the bit, you know. I just think that she's trying to do performance art, but doesn't really like the character that she's mm. been kind of forced to commit to. Because I don't think it aligns with like who she is as a person and what she believes she is, but she knows how it's how she's perceived. And that's like a, a big burden on someone, I think. And it's she doesn't seem like she's doing great, in my opinion. No, she doesn't. And like the shit that she posts about her dad are just like, it's too much. It's like, honey, this is private. You should not be sharing this. Talk, I know. Speak of public grief. But um, I, funny enough, I also asked Caroline because I've DM'd her a couple of times. Like she followed me after I tweeted <sighs> her to like not post nudes or something. And um I said to her, like, do you want to come on my Lifetime podcast and do the movie Homeless to Harvard with me? Yeah. What did she say? She never wrote back. (laughs) We emailed her manager and she wrote back uh, and he wrote back after like three weeks and said no. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they get a lot of asks, but um, okay. So um, yeah, when, when John walked in on Linda, like, like talking to um, Patsy, he had this look of horror on his face, almost as if he knew that he couldn't leave her alone for five minutes just in case someone showed up to ask her for a deathbed confession. Like, he didn't seem to know that Linda was there. He just seemed keenly aware that she was about to spill all at where she was at that point in her life. And um, he, yeah, he truly looked horrified. He really did. Um, so it's 2013. Steve is doing some carpentry in his... um in his garage and by the way i think steve they mentioned at the end that he's a successful entrepreneur and i really wish that like steve went on shark tank because i think that he has the exact right story i think the sharks would totally be into him i think they would invest anything in him um steve so okay um, while he's, you know, sawing away, his wife unplugs his machine and he's like, basically, you got to come see what's on TV. So what's going to play out over the next um, like two and a half minutes is basically the, the rest of the movie. Um, this is like where we all wrap it up here. Um, so 122 to 122.56 to 125. 
and a startling development in the Jean Benet Ramsey case in response to a lawsuit brought by the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. The court released today four pages of an 18-page grand jury indictment secretly issued in 1999 against John and Patsy Ramsey, charging the couple with two counts each of child abuse resulting in death and accessory to murder. Andrea Carey reporting live in Boulder, Colorado. This is where I am now. I've been here for 20 years. I've seen a lot of things from here. I've seen mommy die. I've seen daddy get married again. Burke working with computers. And I've seen you too. All of you looking at me. What do you see when you look at me? What does Steve see? I'm sorry. I forgive you, Steve. And I'm sorry, too. Your life would have been better without me. All the bedtime stories mommy and daddy read to me had happy endings, but my story doesn't have an ending at all, because it's not a fairy tale. It's real life. And in the story of my life, the bad guys don't get caught. The nice people don't win. And I can't click my ruby slippers and go back home. I still don't know who the bad guy in my story is. I guess I never will. Maybe that's okay with me now. Maybe I can let go. Can you? Okay. Um, Before I read the title cards or at the end, can I just say that my personal vision of of who JonBenet is is that she is like a restless bitch. Like she's like, absolutely do not. I am not settling. This will not be the end of my story. I don't think she is going to have like this Christian forgiveness to her. I feel like in my mind, she has the spirit of a zoomer who's just like, fuck this. I'm taking everyone down with me. Wow. I love that for her. I do. I mean, I think it's better than this version where they let this voiceover actress apologize <laughs> to the to Steve for failing to solve her murder, and you know that she forgives and forgets sort of about what's happened. Like, I think that that's just um, it's so sort of disgraceful to her memory. Yeah, I think this ending voiceover is very um, saccharine, and it's very like dumb. <laughs> like, sh- under it underestimates her. I think it was probably rewritten a lot. Yeah. You know? 100%. Um, okay, so then we get a bunch of title cards over the gravestone, which, I mean, I think is actually her gravestone. Honestly, it looks exactly like it. But it says, Patsy Ramsey died of cancer in June 2006. John Ramsey wrote a book uh, on coping with suffering and unsuccessfully ran twice for Michigan House of Representatives. That's kind of depressing. Yeah, that's so depressing. And I had no I had never heard that before. Like, why does he want to be out there like that? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. They love the notoriety. 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like that's, you know, he he could have lived the rest of his life without anyone ever bothering him, but he decided to run for state representative. Okay. The statute of limitations on the charges against John and Patsy Ramsey expired three months after DA Alex Hunter led the public to believe there was no charges at all. So he's in the pedophile ring, too. Um, Fleet and Priscilla White continue to fight for the release of the remaining 14 pages of John and Patsy Ramsey's indictment by the grand jury. Uh, Burke Ramsey is now a computer programming uh, computer programmer living in Atlanta. Steve Thomas never returned to law enforcement after the Ramsey case. He's a successful businessman, husband and father. So he did have kids. That's good. 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 I mean, what a movie. I always find these true crime ones to be a little hard if it's a case you've followed. Um, But I don't think anything short of like an extremely crazy, well-produced, like maybe even a 24 movie type version of this was released. I don't think any movie would satisfy me. Yeah. About, you know, with this case. And it's also just, you know, we I don't even really think we've seen video of JonBenet talking. No, never. I don't think. Just pageant stuff. We have, yeah, we have no idea like what she sounded like, what her essence was. Like she really just sort of lives in these photographs of her all dolled up. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think this was better than the first movie, but I really hated the, um, I really hated the voiceover. Um, it's so crazy. Did you see the casting John Bonet movie? Yes. Oh my God. That's so creepy. How, that I thought though was such a unique take. Yes. Because like not only did you get to hear about the murder, but then like you learned about these weird kind of unemployed character actors lives and like their own they kind of like told on themselves a couple times like there was like a like a creepy ass dude who played john i believe and he was like oh i think it was like pedophiles and like the way he said it it's like oh you have personal experience with that um i love i love that i love the way it was shot and the way it was told i thought it was fascinating was it for this like what were they casting for they were, um, I think the movie was never casting for anything. Okay. I think that all it was really casting for was that recreation at the end where they had like multiple right. patsies in a room, multiple, like that was just genius the way they pulled that off. Like, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. And it was almost as campy as this case sort of needs and deserves. Mm-hmm. Like we need a campy answer to it, which is unfortunate, but I think a lot of people are just still so attached to this case. I know I obviously have never moved past it. Um, the director of this movie has done, um, he did the unauthorized say by the bell movie, restless virgins. Um, he's done a few movies that we've done here. And I think that honestly, a lot of the acting stuff is like direction in my mind Mm -hmm. with these movies. It's just like not really reading the room. Um, but yeah, it's, um, the reviews are pretty popping on IMDb. I feel like we should wrap this up. Normally I would get into some of that, but I feel like we should wrap this up. You were amazing. Thank you so much, Sue. We're going to make sure that all of your information is in the description of the podcast, including a link to your pod. Um, what day does your podcast come out? Yeah, we come out uh, usually every Thursday. 
Awesome. Well, I am so excited. I feel like a lot of people listening will head over and and listen to you guys. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.